Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us once again. This is episode 182. We're recording this on Sunday, July 10th, 2022, at 3 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plackner. Joining me, as always, Todd and Zach. Todd, I like the shirt. It's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. It says, quietly judges your taste in movies, which is... a uh... Yeah, that's something I, I definitely do. I think that definitely <laughs> describes you, especially on the podcast. <laughs> well, on the podcast, it's not so quiet. But it, it, was, it was a fun birthday. I, I guess we need to report on, uh, on, on the birthday uh, celebration. I think the important, uh, the important thing to report on is I beat Todd two times in a row in ping pong. Yeah, wow. we don't need to talk about that. Those are like the yeah. first games I've won in five years against you, so I'm I'm gonna revel in this. You also didn't drink any stro, so <laughs> I not, it's, I'm not an straight. Asterisk. I didn't yeah, drink any straight. That there's no handicap involved. I also <laughs> word got back here to the Midwest that apparently you did pretty well at cornhole, uh, Terry. Uh, I I was uh, I was not the worst player. <laughs> I'll just put it, <laughs> which is an improvement, actually. <laughs> it is an improvement. <laughs> Is an improvement. I'm not going to say who the worst player was, but it, it it may have been the wife and the girlfriend. So, oh nice. Um, <laughs> like they they may have battled out for a little while to see which one of them was worse. So and, and I was making fun of I was making fun of them or my wife because they were just making a a circle of beanbags around the board and none were actually getting on the board. Very nice. I was once in a cornhole game where I accidentally got the uh, cornhole thing stuck on a roof. I, don't ask me how that happened. Uh, there was alcohol involved, needless to say. But would you say that you are the jo Joey Chestnut of uh, ping pong? Did you feel that way after beating Todd twice? It, it feels like a, a Kobayashi 2 chestnut moment like circa 2007. The tide has shifted. Except you're uh, older than Todd, so the, the, yeah, it's true. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I didn't have to choke out a, a protester that came up and stood right in front of me, so I'm, oh, not, wow. I'm not really Joey Chestnut. So, oh, well, that's okay. That's right. I thought you were talking <laughs> about your Fourth of July party. I was like pro protesting Todd's birthday. What? <laughs> Who does that? There's a lot of dumb things to protest, but that's the worst. Uh, it was good. It was good. And Todd, you, you said a PR in our 5K yesterday, right? Yeah, well, I mean, a PR for that, that course. For that, yeah. Oh, that course, okay. It was my best by about two minutes, which is, uh, yeah, I was pretty happy about that. 20th place out of like 1,400 or something. Are you going to say what it is? Or are you going to be like, you know, uh, 20, I got, Rothschild and not it was, say it? It's <laughs> a 2203. At which, the uh, refuse, to abuse, uh, refuse to Abuse 5K at T-Mobile Park in... Uh, in Seattle, where the Mariners play. Yeah, my personal best overall is a, was a flat course, and that was uh, 20 minutes and 19 seconds. And I don't know if I'll ever touch that again. I'm not a 24-year-old anymore. Hence <laughs> <laughs> the birthday. We'll ever yeah. top that. Can't imagine ever topping that. That's it. That's the that, quote. That's the line. There's the magic. 
don't talk <laughs> like that in wine country. Mm. Speaking of wine, good, and you good, just put it good up to your. Right I know, there. right? You just put your your glass <laughs> up to your face. Uh, so, uh, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm drinking some really discolored two buck chuck that is now three ninety nine plus tax across state line in Missouri. Unacceptable, Trader Joe's. I, if people are protesting Todd's birthday, I'm going to protest now. Four four twenty four uh, chuck in Missouri. It's unacceptable. <laughs> That's that's unfortunate. Yeah, unfortunate for sure. The wine still that's the wine still good though. It's the best. It's the best uh, twelve point five APV money could buy. Very nice, very nice. Todd, what do you got? I've, I'm drinking wine as well. I'm drinking the Mina Mesa Red Blend from uh, Paso Robles, which I believe Ooh. was in, from Sideways. Silver medal winner, right? Yep. Yeah, the the Cab Franc that Miles didn't like, but it, it's pretty you know, good. I, it's really smooth. I've never grown to expect greatness from a Cab Franc. Is that one any different? This one's not a Cab Franc. It's just a red blend, but it's actually oh, okay. it's actually pretty good. Strawberries. And a nun's asshole. Not the cheese. No, yeah, All right. no cheese. Uh, so I went to the brewery today. Shout out Ridge Walker. They're starting to recognize me as the podcast guy. Um, and uh, I got I needed something light and refreshing because it's a it's a warm summer day. So this is their uh, their new super saison. And it says it's a it's a lemon saison, so it, it's a almost like a lemonade beer. Like it's not like Mike's Hard or anything like that, but it, it's a it's a lemon beer, so it's nice and nice and refreshing. Exactly what I need today. So there you go. So what's a hot day to you now at, at, at this point in your life? Um, why? Well, what is it? Because the it's weather's like, changed in Oregon since I live there. True. Right? True. Well. Uh, the office I record in currently does not have an air conditioner, right. so uh, so that makes it that makes it warmer than than uh, than normal. But it, it's an it's like an eighty degree day today, but nice. eighty degrees in the afternoon sun without an air conditioner is is gets pretty warm. I know that's what I remember from last summer is that when I stay with my my sister, she doesn't have air conditioning either, and it was way hotter than it ever is out here in the middle of you know. Death Valley, basically. I was going to say today is 94 degrees in Lawrence, Kansas, LFK, and it is beautiful. I mean, this is the best weather we've had in weeks. And, it, and if 94 feels good, you know you have a problem. But it, it it's wonderful out right now. Nice, nice. You have air conditioning. I do have air conditioning. That's very true. You cannot live <laughs> here without air conditioning. Uh, all right. Well, Midwest make sure you're staple. Yeah. Absolutely. Make sure you're subscribing, rating, reviewing all over uh, where you get podcasts. Officially, all of our past podcasts, the whole podcast archive is back up on our feed. So you can go all the way back and listen to our crappy episode one. And while we were still figuring out what was going on, where we reviewed uh, with Todd and I reviewed Dunkirk, Dunkirk and, and gave nice. a top five Matthew McConaughey performances of all time. Um, <laughs> that, that was that was our first episode. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Zach, I don't think you joined in until like episode three or four. You know, I, I was, I just, uh, I was a late arrival. I was, uh, you know, milking it a little bit. There we go. Building there up suspense. Go. When did, right. what was the episode? I think our fortunes changed when we did, when I did the wrong Deadfall uh, review. <laughs> That's when the podcast really took off. <laughs> when was that? Was that maybe episode 20 or so? Oh, I'd have to find that. Exactly when that was. I'm it was not, way later. Not like, sure. Was it? We didn't, I we didn't, remember it. we didn't start 
assigning movies until until a little later like in maybe yeah. episode 50 or something okay we are one year away from deadfall and 30th anniversary although this is technically the 10 year anniversary of the other deadfall is that going to be our next deep dive do we think eric banner uh, i believe was in it i mean no probably no. i don't think we want to i think it's a hard we pass we we're actually coming up on the five-year anniversary of the podcast wow like, i think we started it i got it i'd have to go back and look but i think it was like beginning of august 2017 was our first episode so all right well let's get into talking some movies let's look at we're, we're looking at uh, a big movie in theaters right now uh and we're gonna do uh one of zach's crazy power rankings which is gonna be a lot of fun uh among some other stuff we have planned but first what have we been watching this week and we're gonna start with todd okay i didn't actually get to watch any movies i didn't have to watch for the podcast but I did. Uh, I, I want to talk about a TV show that I've been going back and watching again with my girlfriend. That's Prison Break, which uh, started in 2005 and went till yes. 2017 somehow. It is a. <laughs> it was something that I loved uh, when it came out, and so I was like, I was interested to go back and wa- watch it again. And uh, watching it with somebody else who hasn't seen it is pretty awesome. But, but if you don't know, the show is about uh, this guy Lincoln Burroughs, played by Dominic Purcell, who gets framed for the murder of the vice president's brother, and his brother is Michael Schofield, played by Wentworth Miller, and he's a structural engineer, and he realizes that his firm actually designed the prison that Lincoln was uh, or is in on death row in. So he tattoos the blueprints of the prison on his body in really creative fashion, and he gets himself thrown into prison so he could break his brother out. And on paper, that sounds really bad. But it's an absolute thrill ride, and it's still it holds up. It is still amazing, and it's less about the actual escape; it's more about like uh, relationships and the experience of being in prison. And uh, it's got a lot of twists and turns and uh, cliffhangers, and it, it never really gives you a moment to breathe. It takes kind of what Oz did with prison uh, TV shows, and it capitalizes on that. It really changed broadcast TV forever because, uh, like, The Shield and stuff like that had uh, that that was on like FX, I think, but. It, it, those were like sort of non-episodic but this is the first like mainstream channel that had like a 24 hour movie basically each season 24 sort of did that but that was more standardly edited it was it was more episodic too but this was the first one i was just like you can't watch one episode without having watched the one before it all of this is available on hulu right now and uh, i i could see it being like a killer streaming hit now because people don't like to wait a week in between uh tv sh- uh, their tv episodes but when this was on this was like as as thrilling as anything like what dexter the killing and prison break were the the shows where i was like okay i need to like process and reflect on what i just saw before i watched the next episode i loved that but that's not what people do now i could see prison break now being like even a bigger hit than it was then and i i've noticed some weird things watching back through season one like breaking bad stole like a several things from this show which i didn't really realize like i mean skinny pete's even in this uh in this show um which I didn't remember. They have like an emergency surgery on a human done by a vet, which they 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 do in like a, a Better Call Saul. There's like several things. There's like this is like taken like Breaking Bad took this straight from here. And these actors all sort of became big. Wentworth Miller ended up writing a movie for Chanwick Park uh, after this. Dominic Purcell had a bunch of action movies. Robert Nepper uh, became a villain like in everything after this. Sarah Wayne Callie's got one of the leads in The Walking Dead. I didn't re- remember Tracy Letts in this, Frank Grillo's in this, Stacey Keach, Peter Stormare's best performance ever by far. And um, 
it's an incredible show. It definitely still works. I, I'm getting spun back into the web of this show again. And it's one of the 10 best shows ever made, at least the first two seasons, because four and five are borderline not even canon. Like that was, it gets pretty out there on those ones. But um, once pretty much Matthew Rappaport shows up, it's kind of ridiculous. But if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it. It's definitely worth it. And if you haven't seen it at all, like, I mean, do yourself a favor and just sit down. It's all it's all on Hulu. You will blow through it all. It, uh, you will not be disappointed. It's one of my favorite shows. I like that. I like that. A couple what? things. First, first, if you're going to say it's 20, 2005 to 2017, you got to say that there there was a, a break in there, right? Like, there, it was because what? Is it five, six seasons total? There was five seasons, yeah. Though the last season was 2017, but uh, the first three seasons were all in succession. I think there was like a break between three and four, and then there was like a bigger break between, I don't know, there were like probably eight years until they did their final wasn't wasn't between three and four the the writer strike? Like I feel like that's what happened. That sound that would be that would that would be about right at twenty seventeen. Like yeah. season, I remember season four episode one felt like an entire half a season thrown into one episode, as they tried to catch up so they could tell the story they wanted to. Well, season three I think was like half a season. It was like twelve episodes. It was when they were in the Mexican prison. Yeah. Well, and and th- that was the other thing I wanted to say is this in twenty four. Like they they kind of change the way TV uh, like TV works and how you have to it, it's all and you have to watch the one before, but at the same time they were still in the in the like frame of mind that you have twenty twenty two twenty four episode seasons where now TV shows have like ten or twelve episode seasons and that's it and they tell their story in that long. Back, I mean, Prison Break, they're 22 episode seasons, I think, right? So, you, yeah, well, I mean, it's because it was a broadcast channel. Like, I mean, right. some, some, like, uh, your normal dramas on those channels still do 20 something episodes, but, but none of the, none of the shows like this do that, do that yeah, long of a season. Like, like Hannibal didn't do that after this, and like, a, I don't know. I mean, they, they, it's, it's not normal anymore, but this, yeah. this was one of the, it, like I said, it cha- it kind of changed broadcast TV forever. Yeah. Well, I, Zach, okay. have you ever seen it? No, I've never I've never seen an episode of it. First of all, I want to know what what does the girlfriend think of it so far? Oh, she she is totally invested, screaming at the TV. You know, it's it, it, it's um, it, it's fascinating watching it with somebody who hasn't seen it because it's been part of my life since you know it came out. So. And I think my, we didn't, Zach. Didn't we assign you a couple episodes of this to watch at no, one you, point? No, you assigned me Dexter. Oh, which okay. I promptly gave up after the two episodes you assigned me. Uh, what I was gonna say is, I've I've heard you say a lot, Todd. You're Todd. I'm maybe reluctant to ask this question, but like, do you have a list of your top TV shows of all time? And I guess you don't have to divulge it. Maybe right now, I feel like this would maybe be a good topic for another episode. But like, where exactly would Prison Break rank on your top list? <laughs> I don't have a definitive list, but it's not in the top five, but it would, I mean, I guess if I said top 10, it would be somewhere in the next five, but yeah. After like three or four, it's like, it's sort of murky. Orange is the new black is, so this is the best prison show in other words. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. I know you're a fan of of that show. I was a big fan of Orange is the new black as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great show too. Right. And, and Terry, would this also rank on the back half of your top 10 shows list? Oh, uh, it, yeah, it's got to be probably in the top 10 somewhere. Um, 
I mean, at it's least season one. one. Season one is, is just season, something. First two seasons. I think the first yeah. two seasons, first season and a half are incredible. But see, that's uh, the that's the philosophical question with TV is because, like, to me, The Sopranos would be the greatest show of all time if I don't count seasons five and six, which are borderline unwatchable at times. But you have to include that. So if you're saying that Prison Break isn't canon by the end, I, that to me, that might impact how I rank a show ultimately, right? I mean, Breaking Bad was the exception because Breaking Bad was the only show that got better as it went along until the end. I don't know. Yeah. T- TV is That's more complex point. to rank than than movies, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, it's it's hard for a for a show to end end on top. I like I know Todd. We we love Dexter. Dexter oh. was insane the last couple seasons, and and yeah. like like not in a good way, insane. So or like Game of Thrones, everybody shit on the last season of Game of Thrones. I mean, it that seemed to really impact like the long term you know, ranking of that show, ultimately. I mean, it, it seemed like there was, there was no contest that it would be considered a top 10 show of all time until really those last, like, five episodes, right? And I would say, I would say it unfairly, it was unfairly criticized. I, I think those the last season is fine. It's just not the way everyone wanted it to end. Like, that That was, I think that was more, uh, uh, Game of Thrones was more a, a victim of, like, Twitter backlash more than any other show, like, of all time. Anyways, we've gotten on this random deep dive of te- television. I think shows, we but... need. I think we need a almost sideways TV podcast. Is what this is. This is begging for. It sounds like that would be fun. That'd be fun, and and or ju- yeah, just dedicate some time to just talk TV. That'd be good. That'd be good. All right. Well, we're gonna go to uh, Zach next on what he's been watching. All right. Yeah, I agree with Todd. Not a whole lot coming out this week. Actually, I do. I'll, okay, I'll have two things. I'll go kind of quick on both of them. One was a Criterion film I watched. Uh, from the Agnes Varda collection, Agnes Varda, great filmmaker, one of the premier filmmakers of the French New Wave, but probably the most preeminent uh, female filmmaker. And I watched Vagabond from 1985. Uh, this is a movie about a, um, a girl. She's probably about 20 years old in the movie. And she is basically a living uh, almost as a homeless person, essentially as a homeless person, kind of going from place to place in southern France, kind of getting rides where she can. She's kind of living the transient life. She uh, gets, uh, you know, it's a very episodic movie. It's not like there's a big through line or storyline. It's not necessarily about her downfall necessarily. But um, it's, you know, sort of her encounters with everyday people. The first movie that I, I immediately thought of while watching It's Hard to Miss is Nomadland. If you're a fan of Nomadland, this movie, ha- ha- a lot of Nomadland's roots are in this movie, especially the kind of semi-documentary approach that Agnes Varda has. She's using professional actors, but they just feel like real people uh, and it's not really a big name cast i thought this movie was fantastic uh really really got to me sandrine bonaire who's a really big actress in the 80s in france uh was in some patrice lecomte movies uh is really good in this movie and um you know like varda is sort of an idiosyncratic filmmaker she she likes these sort of off the beaten path stories and this character is kind of hard to pin down she doesn't try to psychoanalyze her she doesn't try to victimize her um we never really learn why this girl is on the streets in the way that she is but uh we're captivated by it and uh they, they kind of do this sort of again semi documentary interview type approach which i thought was really cool so this is a four-star movie i loved it it's one of my favorite now one of my favorite French movies of the 80s. And if you haven't watched an Agnes Varda movie, I mean, she really straddled the line between fiction and nonfiction uh, filmmaking. Just some awesome, awesome stuff. And the Criterion box set is amazing. Uh, And then real fast, 
I did watch Todd's number one movie so far of 2022. I want you back. I'm not going to say too much about it, except that uh, I don't see why Todd loves it so much. I don't want to. I don't want to shit on it. I appreciate that that he uh, st- st- is staking out a, a stance on it, which is cool. Uh, it just wasn't really my thing. What I am astonished by is that this movie is basically the same movie as My Best Friend's Wedding, which is a much better movie that Todd doesn't like as much. So I feel like if you like, uh, I want you back. Go to the source, man. Like, if you like Nomadland, go to Vagabond. If you like I Want You Back, go to My Best Friend's Wedding, which did it way better. However, I do have to say, uh, Charlie Day is entertaining. I like him better in this movie than in the uh, Mountain Dew commercials at the beginning of the Regal movies. And uh, Jenny Slate's entertaining. It's got a good cast. It, 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 it's likable. It's probably about 25 minutes too long. But I will say, especially the first hour, I, I was smiling much of the time. So uh, middle of the road, two and a half stars. Probably better as a, as a limited series, I would say, than a movie. I also realized that that movie did never did get released in theaters, so that it can't it actually isn't a movie, <laughs> so it can't be my number one anymore. See, but. this is the thing. I I I don't I don't know. It, it's got it's such a gray area now with how many movies are streaming and yeah. Can well, I, it's going to get nominated for Emmys apparently, so I think that that's a line you can draw. Can I also well, just? Oh, yeah. go ahead, Terry. No, I was going to say I, it, it's crazy because you get these festival movies that. You know, it, depending on which... Uh, it wasn't in a festival, though. I thought it was, true. but it wasn't. True, but this yeah. one wasn't. But but there are some movies that, you know, play in festivals. Like, I think, like, Bad Education last year with uh, with um, Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. That was a festival movie. It just happened to get bought by HBO Max, so it never saw theater and was eligible for Emmys instead of Oscars. And when it was not... That's not how it was meant to be. That That's not what the filmmakers were wanting for. It. I don't know. I'm just going to include whatever is whatever is a movie as a movie, regardless of what it's going to be eligible for. Yeah, I just wanted to add this has nothing to do with what you were saying, Terry, but my wife and I were watching it and I was laughing at how many Todd Easter eggs are in that movie. Oh, my God. OK, so we got Con Air. They watch. They watch Boy Meets World. They live in Atlanta. And next to the movie theater they go to is a FedEx there's something else. There, were, there was like like 10 things that were just like total Todd things in this movie. I can't remember, but there were a few others. And uh, that was like, okay, yep, I, I, I like it. I like it. Uh, maybe more movies should throw in a depressing French movie reference and I'll give it you know, a thumbs up for that. But uh, it, it, was, it was very amusing. I'll have to look for that. I haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet. I wanted to watch that. I wanted to watch Kimmy. I didn't get to either of them. Did you just get like um, a tingle in your spine every time you saw one of those Easter eggs, Todd? <laughs> like when they when they went to Con Air at the movie theater, were you like, oh yeah, I'm I'm getting turned on by this? Yeah, in a way, it was, it was like subliminally like improving the movie for me for sure. You and the filmmaker were on the same wavelength. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, yeah, I didn't get to watch either of them because uh, my wife and I are uh, are binging our way through Breaking Bad from the beginning. Um, we she got like a few episodes into the final season, the first half of the final season, and then for whatever reason we just stopped for a while, and then we tried to go back and start it up again. And she was like, "I have no idea what's going on anymore." So we're like, "Fine, season one, episode one, let's do it." And we just started it over and are watching our way back back through it but what i watched this week my oscar watch for the week uh going back 30 years to 1992 this was uh a winner of best foreign film and a nominee for best actress uh uh indochine yes indochine never seen it always yeah 
yes, Catherine Deneuve uh, gets gets the Oscar nomination here for a French film. Um, that where did you find is, it? Is it anywhere? This uh, it is on. I think it's on Tubi right now. That but I, right. I I found the DVD at the library, so I didn't have to watch ads. I bet the DVD is like twenty five <clears throat> years old. Oh yeah, it was. Old. I bet it's pan and scan. It it was pretty old. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, directed by uh, Regis Wagnier, I think is how we're going to go with it. Um, anyways, it tells the story. What's funny is it's a French movie and none of it takes place in France. Um, it all takes place in Vietnam or Indochina, as it was known then, because this takes place in the 1930s. Um, when uh, And Catherine Deneuve plays a, uh, a French woman living there. Uh, and her family owns a giant rubber tree plantation, and um, her some of her best friends growing up uh, were Vietnamese people that lived nearby. They both died, and she adopted their little girl. Her name is Camille, and raises her as her own. And um, and then there gets to be this love triangle between the mom and the daughter and this French officer. Uh, which is kind of weird for a little while. Like he first falls for her, for the mom, and then he falls for the the uh, the daughter, and uh, more the daughter falls for him, um, and he just kind of goes with it. it. It's it's a two hour and forty minute movie. It's meant to be this big, huge epic, and it is like the slowest epic I've ever watched. Like the first hour, of this movie could have taken place or could have uh, been told in about. 15 minutes and you could have cut 45 minutes off the movie. It had no reason to be that long because nothing happens. It's also one of the movies I hate when movies do this, where all the action takes place off screen and all you see is everyone else's reaction. Like the next day to the stuff that is going on, um, especially in a two hour and 40 minute Epic, you have that running time to show everything, show what's going on. Uh, the movie does pick up a little bit in a uh, little later on as the daughter Camille uh, goes to fight for uh, to be with her uh, her French officer, you know, dream man and ends up killing a French officer. And in doing so, she inadvertently becomes like a symbol of the Vietnamese Revolution in uh, and and kicking the French out and becoming their own independent nation. Um it, like I said, it was interesting. Um, the second half got much more interesting. The first half was ridiculously slow and had way too much setup. Um, I'm giving it, what did I give it? Two and a half stars, I believe. Yeah, two and a half stars. Um, it it could have been it could have been better, um, but it wasn't it wasn't horrible. Uh, it ended weird. I didn't like the ending at all. Um, but uh, definite definite effort there. Catherine Deneuve was very good, uh, but I, it's interesting that this is a movie that that emerged 30 years ago in in getting getting that uh, that double nomination there. So that's Indochine. How many people in the world do you think have seen Indochine? Well, it's mm-hmm. got 10,000 ratings on IMDb. Oh, okay, hmm. But those are probably people that like you try tried to stick it through the first hour, but maybe gave up. Because I, I can't believe it's two hours and 40 minutes that anyone would actually watch that. It is also interesting. Is 92 Best Actress one of the weakest categories of all time? It has to be one of the weakest acting categories of all time. Yeah, it's it's a weird 
it's a weird I mean, list. It was allegedly, sure. year of the woman, so you know, didn't have yeah. very many good. I mean, ninety four best actress is also pretty awful too. But I, I think those two years, I think they have to be considered two of the worst, two of the weakest best actress years of all time. Well, I'll be watching my way through all of them. So not I've that got... I've seen Indochine. You're one of the yeah. few people in the world who has. So yeah, I so how uh, Emma Thompson for Howard's End one. I saw that a long time ago. And then it was Catherine Deneuve and then Susan Strandon for Lorenzo's Oil, which I've seen. And still coming are Michelle Pfeiffer for Love Field and Mary McDonald for Passion Fish. Love Field is unwatchable. I gave up on it. I tried to watch it once. Unwatchable. Well, for I, I will say for a two hour and 40 minute movie, Indochine was extremely long. Um, like there, there are those epics that are three, three and a half hour movies that like breeze by that don't feel like you're watching a movie that long. Indochine is not one of them. I'll just. I'll just say that. So, all right, let's move on. Or I'm done talking like about the first this. 30 minutes of this episode. Exactly. Long. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's get into our featured review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. And for that, it's the MCU. We're watching Thor, Love, and thunder. Kids, get the popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking. Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. Well, he got in shape. He went from dad bod to god bod. And after all that... Yeah. He reclaimed his title as the one and only Thor. Oh, spoke too soon. Jane? The old ex-girlfriend. What's it been like? Three, four years? <laughs> Eight years, seven months and six days. Give or take. Am I uh, sensing feelings? Well, you're right. The only ones who gods care about is themselves. So this is my vow. All gods will die. I just want to say that was very, very impressive what you did back there. Just my first bad guy. You never forget your first. You are not like the other gods of Kilm. Because I have something worth fighting for. Let's see who you are. I take off your disguise and flick. Oh, you flicked too hard, damn it! Shall we help him? And eventually, grape. Uh, the latest installment, uh, the fourth Thor movie. Uh, who would have put the bot betting odds on uh, on Thor being the first one to four standalone movies? I was not. It wouldn't have been that would have been my my bet, but that's where we're at. Uh, Zach, you are the MCU expert here. 
and and that that's a joke. But you always have to start out our our reviews of MCU movies. I don't know why this became a thing, but it it did. So the floor is yours. Tell us about Thor: Love and Thunder and what you thought. Yeah, and this is the 29th MCU movie, so I feel like this is the only 29th. time I ever get to introduce movies on the podcast. I did not see Doctor Strange, so uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's nice nice to be back in the driver's seat again, watching another MCU movie. Um, I gotta say, like all the fans out there, I really, really was wondering whatever happened to Natalie Portman after the second Thor movie, and I just thought, man, what a great setup to bring her back from the dead. Um, uh, you know, uh, I gotta say, if you had asked me when Thor Ragnarok came out, I would have said within the last three years. It was shocking for me to see. I, I would have lost trivia on that. Like, seriously, I would have never said that it came out five years ago. So if you're wow. saying that something was actually that long ago when it seemed that recent, probably not a good sign for your movie. Another problem, another red flag for your movie is when you have, and I'm going to try to count on my fingers here. Let's see. We have a narrator in this movie who says what happened in the past. We have a staged recitation with two movie stars. Can we spoil the movie stars? I'm Absolutely. Them. Yeah. Matt Damon and uh, Chris Hemsworth's brother, uh, who recreate the events Not of the, the last famous movie. One. Uh, we have some flat, <laughs> actual literal flashbacks to what happened in the last movie. We have a love montage. I don't know if it happened or didn't happen, but uh, it was Thor and Jane's relationship. Actually, it's one of the highlights of the movie. I thought it was intriguing that they went on Halloween together and Thor was a hot dog. I actually kind of smiled at that moment. Um, anyway, uh, this is a movie that is uh, ridiculous. It, it, uh, uh, Liam Hemsworth, or Chris Hemsworth is back as Thor and unfortunately there's no more mark ruffalo the hulk is gone uh kate blanchett who i said was in a marvel movie and i got a point for in trivia a couple weeks ago that was one of my proudest mcu moments on this podcast is no longer in this movie as hella um listen thor was a bad franchise okay the academy award winner kenneth rana should have brought his academy award winning caliber screenplays to the first two movies because they sucked they were among the worst mcu movies so basically what happened with Taika Waititi, I feel like it was a Seattle Seahawks 2012 thing where you, you're, you're, you're blind and you just throw a dart on the wall and you hope it hits. You hope you get a Russell Wilson. It's kind of like what the Panthers are doing right now with their quarterback circus. And I guess it kind of hit with Taika Waititi. They certainly found something. And Thor Ragnarok had a lot more energy and excitement and goofiness than the first two movies. I think I gave it two and a half stars. I wasn't totally on board with it. Um, so basically, they're kind of back doing the same thing as Thor Ragnarok, except this time, um, it just doesn't feel as energetic or as fresh. I think part of the backlash to this movie, and I, there hasn't been a huge backlash, it actually I think has fairly decent reviews, but part of the backlash to this movie is Taika Waititi. Uh, this seems clearly like a, a setting the stage for him to direct the next Star Wars uh, reboot he is oversaturated in our uh, MCU Disney universe. He is everywhere. Um, and I think we're just a little bit, I'm just a little bit tired of Taika Waititi. I don't know if what, what, what you guys think. Uh, I actually am a fan. I mean, I'm, you know, Terry and I are some of the few defenders of Jojo Rabbit, uh, one of the most scathed Oscar winning movies, really this side of Crash and extremely loud and incredibly close. Anyway, I'm not even really talking about the movie. Uh, I'm just going to say that I really didn't like this movie. Uh, the, the plot line um, was, uh, you know, we, we come to expect Taika Waititi. Uh, he's the master of uh, smug comedy that is uh, quirky and, you know, unexpected. 
And then uh, he throws in some emotional beats here, uh, here and there. This movie was such a contrast of tones. I mean, on the one hand, you got Christian Bale, who's giving this like torn performance as a father who's lost his daughter. He's like acting in another movie. And I, I wrote down his appearance in this movie was a mixture of Hellraiser, Jared Leto's Joker, Marilyn Manson, Nicholas Holt and Mad Max, Pennywise and Uncle Fester. And I think that that sort of sums up the whole movie. This movie is a pastiche of a bunch of junk. You know, Asgard was destroyed in Thor Ragnarok. And in this movie, there is the new Asgard where uh, Matt Damon and Liam Hensworth put on performances shamelessly for commercial value. And I think that's all that we get out of the Thor movies anymore. Uh, there's no originality in this movie. Um, it just is kind of one lazy comic beat of Thor with the Guardians of the Galaxy inexplicably. They leave after 20 minutes. I don't really know why. We get some rehashing with the girlfriend that everybody wanted back in the series and uh, a plot line that is just kind of ridiculous. It's kind of like a mixture of like the Pied Piper myth uh, and, you know, something out, and, and frankly, uh, it. Um, and then we get some comic uh, cameos here and there. I don't know. I really hated this movie. Uh, not, not a fan of the MCU. The best thing about it, the two best things about it are, number one, that it was only two hours and five minutes. I mean, let's be honest, that's that's not bad. And then the only other thing I'll say about it is I do like that it was so ridiculous, I guess. And I think Taika Waititi would also say that this movie's kind of crap and, and meant to be crap. Um, so I guess I give him props for that. But this was, uh, wow, this was sort of a, a, a mess all over. And I give it one and a half stars. All right. One and a half from Like my Zach. review, a big mess. Yeah, your I, I don't was understand this movie. I, I I didn't understand the plot of it. It was very. It was like Christopher Nolan dialogue. Can you guys explain what happened in this movie? Because I I was lost most of the time. Uh, yeah, you had. I'll go next. Yeah, so you had you had Gore the God Butcher who's out to kill gods, and he's after Thor. You have you have Jane coming back, who is uh, who. I, I find it interesting. I didn't understand. I was curious to find out how she became Thor because that's like the big thing. She's yeah. now she's how now the she... female Thor. And no, and, no it, it I I think it makes sense. It it makes total sense how, how it all happens. Um and uh and she's able to to uh to wield Mjolnir uh because of because of, of one little promise that uh that Thor asked of Mjolnir. Uh and um I I liked this movie. I didn't love this movie. And it's really interesting how polarizing this movie is. I, I've been reading reviews and people either love this movie or they hate this movie. And there's not a lot in between, but I'm I'm kind of one in between. I'm giving it three stars. I gave Ragnarok three and a half. Um, I do like the energy Taika Waititi brings to uh, brings to this universe, brings to Thor. Um, I always thought the first round of MCU movies, Thor was the worst. And the second round, Thor the Dark World, is is one of the borderline unwatchable movies of the MCU, if there is one of those. Uh, Ragnarok brought something fresh, brought something new. And Thor Love and Thunder brings that same thing. It gets a little old. Um, and so it, that which is what keeps it from being uh, on top. But one thing I do like about this is this is like more than any other movie we've had in the MCU in a long time, a fairly standalone MCU movie. Like this is the, everyone that's in this movie 
are Thor characters outside of your little bit of Guardians of the Galaxy. And they're they're there because they have to be there because Endgame ends with Thor going off with the Guardians of the Galaxy. So you have to have them show up. But I love the fact that they leave after 10 or 15 minutes because this isn't a Guardians movie. This is a Thor movie. And so everybody else in this movie are Thor characters and they don't they don't go back and and say, oh, hey, remember what happened in WandaVision like they do in Doctor Strange. Uh, they, they don't they don't do all these little wink at what's going on like they do in, in the other MCU movies. This is this is just Thor. And 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 I love that about this movie. It can kind of stand on its own. It can hold it hold itself up. Uh, some of the stuff that goes on. I mean, it doesn't make a I, I agree. Some of the stuff, especially how it ends, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's kind of convenient. Um, but I'm OK with that. I'm OK with that. Um, it, it's an entertaining movie uh, for what it is. Uh, yeah three stars it's not it like i said it's not ragnarok ragnarok was so fresh and new and original that 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 kind of stands higher than the rest but it is a good movie and one of the better mcu movies of this new phase todd where are you at well you said they i mean they they made a black widow movie and we all criticize that so i don't know like what you're really saying about it's been a long time like it hasn't been that long but I don't know. You guys, okay, both of you like this movie significantly more than I do. Like, this movie sucks. Like, I mean, it, like, really, really sucks. Like, Taika Waititi sucks. Like, I'm tired of his shtick. I mean, even to an extent in Lightyear, I didn't like it. But, I mean, even his voice is pissing me off now. Christian Bale thinks he's doing Shakespeare. The, the visuals are atrocious. It looked like a Power Rangers TV show green screen level. Like, at times, I'm like, I, I did not know what, like, who, who did the visual on that. But it was t- uh, atrocious. Uh I think it's it's corny. I, I I thought it was a joke when it started, but then no, that I mean that was that was just that's a that's the movie. Like it was actually kind of impressive that they stuck with like it was that bad and they just kept with it. it. It's difficult to take seriously. It's clearly made for children, but I wouldn't really wish that on any child. Like I mean, I, I can't imagine any adult thinking any of this is funny. Russell Crowe is awful. Like I mean, it just like uh, like really really bad. And I I I can't believe that the Thor movies actually got worse because I I thought Thor was the worst the worst movie. I actually think the four four of the six worst MCU movies are all the Thor movies. Like because I think Ragnarok is borderline unwatchable too. But this plays like a bad video game with Oscar winners just embarrassing themselves on screen. The tone is like George Lucas doing his Star Wars prequels, but like a screenplay written by like a PG thirteen slash Baron Cohen or something. Like, that's the level of intellect and just like nonsense we're, we're looking at. And it's actually kind of boring. I, 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 and yeah, Christian Bale's in a different movie. He's clearly think, I mean, he's doing like a Harry Potter villain thing and everybody else is a cartoon. I, I, we need to stop supporting the MCU and like reviewing these movies. Cause what was the last time we all liked one of the movies? I think it was infinity war, which was four years ago. So like what, 15 movies ago. Like, I mean, we, like it's kind of ridiculous. I'm kind of done. Like we, we don't we don't we don't like these movies like why do we keep reviewing them i i mean at least it's not three hours like i mean i'll be generous and give it a half a star but i mean that's that's as, that's as good as i can go wow. generous and a half a star nice wow did you think russell crowe was like summoning a little bit of tom hanks's energy and elvis <laughs> like what was that yeah that, that was that was interesting. i don't know what the, it, that's like you know I, I agree with you todd like I didn't know what I was watching the first 10 minutes either. I didn't know what I was watching when I was seeing Russell Crowe on screen. Like he was in a different movie. 
Like he yeah, was... but like gold chest plate. I mean, he looked like Goldar from Power Rangers. Like, I mean, it, it was so. I mean, I don't know what the hell they were doing. I think well, we Marvel yeah. I, I, the, the large. Okay, so in the grand scheme of things, no one's going to remember this movie. It's garbage. I think the bigger point is what is Marvel doing in this phase? We don't have Thanos anymore. We don't have the Infinity Stones anymore. They're 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 lost. They're adrift behind a, a an idea, unifying theme. Uh, they tried a little bit with multiverses, uh, but there's no multiverses in this movie, thankfully. Um, and this movie, you're right, Terry, it doesn't tie into anything, which I guess you could say is, is a benefit on the one hand. But on the other hand, the story is so weak in this movie. I mean, Christian Bale's motivations in this movie, uh, the, the, what is the necro sword? Can someone explain that to me? Because literally the god gives it to him at the beginning of the movie saying this will give you unlimited power. And then he he cuts his head off. Like, really? I mean, I, was, I thought that was a horrible way to open the movie. Uh, it gives him unlimited powers. What is eternity? Are we, why couldn't Thor have gone to eternity and asked the one question to undo all of all everything that Thanos had done after Infinity War? Like, this movie has no continuity at all within the MCU. And it shows a lack of focus and direction of phase four. And I, 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 you know, okay, fine. Tie it back into more products. But I think people are, are, are losing interest in the MCU. They're coming off of a few bad movies. Uh, they're coming off a few bad shows. The only thing that's been good has been Loki, which is of course absent entirely from this movie because the film, the filmmakers know that Loki is better than this garbage. I think Tycho knows this is a bad movie, by the way, Todd. I, I mean, like I said, it's a children's movie. Like, I don't it's... think he he takes. I think he's a smart enough person to know that this is just a, a, a paycheck. I I I I don't know. I think you guys are being a little a little harsh on it, but I I will say uh, I agree completely with what you're saying about where's the MCU going? Because I don't know if anybody knows. And like Kevin Feige was mentioning recently, oh, you know soon it's all going to start to take shape and you're going to start to understand where it's all going and then you get the most standalone mcu movie that you've had since like phase one um and uh and and nothing ties in i would say if there was anything that tied in i i'm pretty sure you saw like the celestials from eternals in the background oh of some of the stuff in the in the like this movie God made eternals world. look good um but yeah, there's there's no continuity in anything from going from movie to movie, and it's just like we're just gonna throw a bunch of stuff out there and see what sticks. And and you're exactly. right, I, it was kind of it was kind of sad to not see Loki. I I didn't mind not seeing Loki because he's off doing something completely different. There there's filming season two of Loki right now. I do know that. Um, Moon Knight was supposed to be good. I mean, the the shows are really what's going well right now. Um. But the movies, I, I keep seeing people post like the problem is after you had such a great climactic moment like Avengers Infinity War and, and Avengers Endgame, it's like coming off of that. What what are you going to do? I mean, it's almost like it's almost like when the Pro Bowl was played after the Super Bowl. Everyone watched the Pro Bowl and was like, well, I mean, this is just anticlimactic because we just watched the Super Bowl and now we're going to watch an exhibition where nobody really cares. And that's kind of what phase four has felt like so far of, of it, it. It's how do you, how do you follow, you know, the, that amazing moment in, in end game. I think 
I think Thor Love and Thunder is, is able to to stand on its own better than any of the other Phase 4 movies so far. But that's not really saying much. Um, I well, mean, see, Shang-Chi, I, I, Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi is pretty yeah. great, right? But I mean, like, that's just, that. that's also sort of spinning off of Doctor Strange, I guess. Like, But it's, I don't know. I think, Sha- I think Shang-Chi, I, I think it was like right on the border of two and a half, three stars for me. So that's what I mean. Um, like we haven't we haven't all four given a thumbs up since Infinity War, and that's like fifteen movies ago. Like <laughs> this is why this is getting ridiculous. Yeah, I don't think I reviewed Infinity War. I I, I didn't see it until much later. I didn't see it in the theater. Oh, okay, okay. The other thing I want to say, and again, this is spoilers, but the ends the the the, the, the post credit scenes in this movie. I mean, and we're talking about Eternals, right? Well, Eternals had some post credit scenes that were promising some new movies with some characters from Eternals, but then the movie bombed. So are we going to see these movies, these characters, these franchises that Marvel is promising us? Or if the movie doesn't do well enough in their eyes, are we not going to see what the end, what the post-credit scene in this, or mid-credits, I should say, scene in this movie promises? And the, po- the, the post-credit scene was ridiculous. I mean, like, come on, let's, let's, we, do we really need Thor to come back? We really need a fifth Thor movie? I mean, Taika's off to direct a new Star Wars movie. When's he going to have time to pencil it in? I, 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 I couldn't. I was so over this movie. I agree with Todd. I give it one. I'm, can I move it down? To, I can't move it to one star because it was only two hours. But <laughs> yeah, it was very frustrating. Like I said, I liked Thor Love and Thunder. I didn't love it. Um, but it, it MCU in general right now is searching. And I don't know if they know what they're searching for yet. So, all right. Uh, I gave it three stars. Zach dropped down. No, he's going to keep it one and a half. half. Todd's giving it a half a star. Uh, (laughs) It's in theaters right now. I got mad mad respect for Todd. That that takes some balls giving it a half star. But I I appreciate it. I like it. It's not worse than Jurassic Park Dominion. I can't can't put it beneath Well, I still haven't seen it. (laughs) This is definitely the worst movie of the year. Uh, just looked it up. Thor's number one at the box office this weekend with 143 million. Minions two at 46 million. Top Gun Maverick number three at 15 million. There we go. <laughs> Be my wingman any day. Uh, all right. Well, uh, let's move on. I think we're good on that. And uh, we're going to move on to a spotlight segment we have here. Spotlight. where uh, we are going to honor one of the great actors of, uh, of the last 50 years or so who passed away this week. And that's James Caan. Uh, there's been a, there's been a lot of like legendary actors that uh, we've heard of their passing recently, but James Caan was a big one. And so uh, to honor him and to honor that we are going to, uh, we are going to do a Mount Rushmore of James Caan and, uh, and the, uh, to honor to honor him and his memory um do we want to put forth a, a our our consensus before we start zach i know you wanted to start this so uh so do we want to do we want to start with uh with giving our our consensus non-negotiable or non-negotiable i say, say let's wait i don't know if it's it's a case of like uh you know the Mount Rushmore of like Adam Sandler, where it's so obvious that you know we don't even need to say it. Okay, but uh, we'll, we'll, right. see, we'll see where this goes. We're, we're like Marvel. We'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We have no we'll plan. See what develops? 
we're we're taking our cues from state from a phase four of the MCU, and uh, we're gonna just see what happens. So, Zach, you asked to to be uh to yes, be the I first did. one to talk here on this. So so because go ahead I was and talk. of the three of us, I'm also the big, biggest Marvel fan and James Con fan. No, actually, when uh, Todd suggested this uh, Mount Rushmore, I realized I really haven't seen that many James Con movies. And the one that I did want to see, I know that Todd has seen and I didn't want him to take it from me. So I'm, I think I'm taking Todd's because I actually watched it yesterday and I'd never seen it before. And it was a movie I've always wanted to see. And at the event of his passing, I finally got to watch it. And that is from 1981, Michael Mann's Thief. And I'm glad I watched it. It's an awesome movie. Really enjoyed it. And I think it has to be considered uh, James Conn's best performance. And in Thief, he plays Frank, who is a thief. He also owns a car dealership. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's kind of he does these kind of jewel thief, jewel theft on the side a little bit. He gets kind of noticed by the mob and he gets this mob, uh, this mob boss played by Robert Prosky. He approaches him and says, will you basically work for me? And James Caan, it's a classic James Caan performance. There's a little bit of Sonny Corleone in it. He kind of flies off the wall at times. He's a little bit, I would say, reckless and loud. (laughs) Um, He agrees. But of course, there is some friction between him and the mob. There's also some friction between him and the corrupt police force who want to pay out to kind of let him go. Uh, you know, um, and then he has this relationship in the movie with Tuesday Weld. Uh, James or Jim Belushi is one of his uh, associates in the movie. Uh, really awesome movie. If you like Heat, if you like Michael Mann, there's a lot of DNA in in uh, in Thief. And, uh, you know, there's some great shirtless footage of uh, James Conn in this movie. It was when body hair was still a thing. He's also got some shirtless footage of Jim Belushi on a beach. I mean, there's some great, that's some great stuff there. But in all honesty, this is like a good movie. You know, it's a kind of classic, kind of canon-esque movie, like the Canon Corporation type movie. It's kind of like the movie equivalent of getting punched in the face. Uh, And I give it three and a half stars. I know you guys weren't asking for a review, but it is a movie I I watched this week in preparation for this Mount Rushmore. And it is unequivocally of the four movies of James Conn's that I've seen his best performance. It's better than that Robert Altman space movie. (laughs) Uh, Oh, is he in that? Oh, Marooned? No, that's the one that Marilyn Bubble watched. Countdown. Uh, Countdown, yeah. I didn't remember him in Countdown. It's like the main character. I don't remember anything in Countdown. Uh... That, was I that going to be your seen... pick, Todd? Uh, it was on. It was on the list. Okay, I just wanted to make sure to steal it from you because I wasn't going to watch it and then have you take the pick. So, but you know, it, it's it's a good movie. I'd recommend it to to everybody. All right. Well, Todd, why don't you go next? What's your uh, What's your submission? Well, I don't know why we're not saying The Godfather is consensus, but whatever. Uh, the like for me, like he like James Con was was like the epitome of like masculinity when he was younger so in like his godfather era but like what i think of when i think of james con is his like mid 90s kind of stuff uh where he was almost a different actor he sounded different and he looked different sort of the way pacino eventually uh also uh progressed and so well i'm gonna take something from that era and i'm going to say the one thing that i always think of when i first think of james con and that's honeymoon in vegas because in that movie like tommy corman is like the perfect just like i i own a casino i'm a gangster kind of thing and he he ended up actually playing um like a similar character in that show vegas that he was in but like but his his aura in that movie just just oozes like everything you need from like a, a really tough supporting character 
and he seen t- steals scenes from Nicolas Cage even. Um, and I, it, it's a his contrast from like he also plays poker in that movie, which uh, also one of my other picks I was gonna say was The Gambler, which was his er- one his early movie, his like leading role after The Godfather. So uh, it kind of uh, ties in well with that. But we need something from his later era, and Honeymoon in Vegas is the one that I always think of. That's a good pick. That's a good pick. I mean, you, you, he's got that that era where uh, he he almost just like leans into it and knows he's playing a caricature of himself and is perfectly okay with that. I mean, I I haven't seen it, but another one I think of with that is like Mickey Blue Eyes, um, and uh, and you sure. could even go you can go all the way to Elf and and just he's playing he's playing like a caricature of himself, and it's one of the things I always loved about him is. He was a great actor and and showed that in many in many things, but he never took himself too seriously and was never afraid to make fun of himself either. So uh, so that that is a great pick. Uh, I'm just going to assume that our consensus is the Godfather and we're just going to go with that and we can talk about that later. Uh, The pick that I'm going to go with uh, that I'm going to submit is his role in misery. uh, Mm. Which is another one. It's it's. One of my my favorite movies that I always forget about, but it is it is such a wonderful movie and is just it's just amazing. And I mean, Kathy Bates is always the one that gets the gets the credit for for Misery, and she like she won the Oscar for it and everything. But Kathy Bates is nothing unless James Caan is perfect in his role as as the the tortured writer, uh, not only in trying to figure out what he's going to write about, but also he's literally being tortured. Um, so, uh, it's, it's just a great performance and for most of it, he's laying in bed and you see just how much, how much, uh, presence he has on screen, uh, when he, all he has to work with is really his face because he's bedridden for the majority of that movie. And he's still able to be magnetic and, and just draw, he just draws your attention and you really feel for him and everything that he does. So, so my pick is misery. Yeah, it's interesting, like seeing the the evolution of his persona over time, going from a tough guy, but an emotional tough. He's also in Brian's song. I've never seen Brian's song, yeah, but right. like that's maybe the most famous TV movie of all time. Um, one of the most famous sports movies of all time. He had a sort of vulnerability to him that was sort of surprising, I guess, in some ways. Uh, and then I think really from Thief to Misery did nothing in the 80s and then kind of yeah, parody of himself a little bit in movies like Elf and Bottle Rocket and a couple others. But uh, you know, I, it's hard to like have that sort of physicality and and grit, but also an emotional side. So and the body here. I mean, it, it must be said the body here is is quite amazing. Uh, this side of Burt Reynolds. So uh, he he really was one of a kind. And of course, his son Scott Kahn is having a great career as well, and uh, ostensibly seemed like a pretty pretty good guy in real life. Hopefully, yeah. Well said. Well said. All right, let's talk a little bit about The Godfather. Todd, and you 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 were the first to mention it. I mean, The Godfather yeah. is is like the peak of James Conn, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Sonny Corleone is is his best character and he only played it in one movie. Like all the other actors got multiple movies, but he got one movie and his his role was so significant. They had to basically sort of like how we can we get him back in there even though we killed him. It's like so we'll we'll have his son, I guess, be like the one of the main characters in one of these movies. It's uh he he's he's amazing and the like I, I think I said in our deep dive like he 
he always finds it funny that he has been named Italian of the year twice and he's not Italian. Like that, that is how iconic that role is. So he's, a, I mean, he, it's, it's a perfect performance. And I mean, I think he might be my favorite character in the Godfather saga. Yeah. I mean, there, that movie is filled with all those iconic performances. I mean, when you think of the first one, you think of, of Marlon Brando and Vito and, and then you've got Pacino as Michael who ends up enduring through it all. And, and you've got, of course, Robert Duvall and John Cazale. James Conn steals every scene he's in <laughs> and he, he is the show whenever he's on screen. And it, it, yeah, the, the, the simple, I mean, we, we've talked about this before and, and a lot of people will say Godfather part two is better than the Godfather, but I think we, we all say the first one is better. And I think one of the main reasons the first one is better is James Conn. Uh, you cannot replace that energy. You cannot replace that just gravitas he brings to every moment he's on screen. And he is like, I, I, I think I agree with you, Todd. I think he's my favorite character in any of the Godfather movies. And uh, just because he is the most fascinating and uh, in, in just, he could just, he's so emotional and he's just so, so reactionary in everything that he does that it just adds this level of complete uh, complete spontaneity that no one else can bring. Like Michael is, is so cold and calculating. Sonny is just, is so spontaneous in everything he does, doesn't think through anything. And that brings an excitement to everything that he does because no one knows what he's going to do, including him. And he plays that perfectly. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's like you said, the best character he's ever played and he played it to perfection. Yeah. He's like, he's like a loose cannon which is why he couldn't be the Don, but he's, but, uh, but everyone still looks up to him because he acts like he's the boss because he carries himself like he's the boss. And that's James Caan just doing his uber masculine thing. Yeah. I mean, think, if you call think about someone, if he, think about if he wasn't killed and, and, and he, cause he would have been the Don and just how much that changes everything. Sorry. Go ahead, Zach. I was just going to say, if you, if you get called Sonny Corleone and someone's like, stop acting like Sonny Corleone, you know exactly what they mean. His character is that iconic. But here's the problem, okay? We've got we've got Sonny Corleone as the non-negotiable. We got Thief, we got Misery, we got Honeymoon in Vegas. What are the Zoomer millennials going to say that we didn't have Buddy the Elf's dad as a Mount Rushmore pick? And we're going to lose subscribers. We're going to lose at least two of our three listeners. I mean, the millennials out there are going to revolt. They don't know what the Godfather is, so you know, not having. Well, they've watched the offer. They know now. There you okay, go. That's true. Cause everybody watched that. Uh, I just think buddy, the elf's dad is everybody's favorite uh, Christmas dad in a Will Ferrell movie, right? It, it... <laughs> that's a very specific <laughs> thing, but yes. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's probably the one that most people will remember him for. Isn't that sad? everyone has seen. Elf. Isn't that sad? Like, what do you think is the breakdown that the most iconic role of, of his career? Uh, I was about to say Scott Cotton, James Conn's career. I would, I would bet like 65% of people would say elf. Right. And maybe, maybe 30 would say the Godfather, Godfather and five would say misery. I think that's, that's the why breakdown. I said honeymoon in Vegas. I think that the movie, yeah. like basically everyone's seen too. Oh, I don't know. It's about like that. the second lead. Yeah, I, I, I like I like that we're keeping Elf off the list. Screw the millennials. 
I, I I like it too, but I I would say that persona is still represented in Honeymoon in Vegas because it's that later that later version of him where he's kind of playing off of the persona that he's established in all of his other films. Um, I like our list. This is better than I thought it was going to go. You've never seen Honeymoon in Vegas? I said I've only seen like four James Conn movies. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but it is a cager. Um, All right, so our Mount Rushmore James Conn, we have The Godfather, Thief, Honeymoon in Vegas, and Misery. Like I said, I think that's a brilliant a brilliant top four. I think you can tell how there. old we are on, on that list. You can you can tell some demographic information about the hosts of this show based on that list. I think it just shows that we're film fans. I, I, I think that's, well, that's, that's more... What, what we would say, of course. It than anything. We're quietly I mean, yes, judging we, people, like Todd's shirt. We're, we we're are, quietly <laughs> judging people who would put Buddy Elf's dad as his best performance. We are we are getting old, but uh, I, I think it's more more that we're we're just fans of film in general. I think is is what it is. That's what I'm going to keep telling myself until it makes me feel better. Um, <laughs> all right, moving on. It is time for power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And we we had this weird in-between week two weeks ago where Zach wasn't here. So we kind of did our own thing. And luckily we all tied in, in the, in power rankings. So uh, in guessing Zach's list, because all three of us picked the same random actor to be number three on his list. Hey, America Uh, Ferreira is not a random actor. Okay. (laughs) She was in the sisterhood of traveling pants, which I'm hoping makes an appearance on Todd's list. If it doesn't, I I quit this podcast. Uh, All right. Anyways, so we're going to do uh, Zach's list that he earned by winning. Oh, Sonny winning I'm, I was, that was a little unpredictable. I'm sorry. Four episodes ago, <laughs> we're finally paying off what he gets here. So, Zach, what are we doing? We are doing fictional filmmakers or, or directors. Uh, that is, filmmakers depicted on screen in movies uh, that are not real. So, for example... If you were to go with uh, Howard Hughes in The Aviator, memorably played by Leonardo DiCaprio, that would not qualify because that was a real-life person. However, Jack Horner, uh, the great porn director played by Burt Reynolds, would be considered a fictional filmmaker. And he's maybe uh, where I came up with this list from, too, as for. All right. All right. So yeah, fictional filmmakers. This is going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to have have some some great uh, some great stuff on here. Uh, we are going to start with Todd. Give us your number five. Okay, my number five comes from True Romance. It is Lee Donowitz, played by Saul Ruminek, and he made this movie called Coming Home in a Body Bag, which is referenced by Clarence as his first the first movie to with balls to win the Oscar since The Deer Hunter, which to me is just like rings. It's the best endorsement you can ever give a movie. It's like his semi-autobiographical Vietnam movie about his career or his experience in the war. And he's uh, he is the son of the Bear Jew, Donnie Donowitz, who uh, obviously has some crazy war experiences as well in, in Glorious Bastards. It, it was uh, I made this uh, list in 2012 called uh, "Fake Movies We Wish Were Real," and uh, "Coming Home in a Body Bag" was number one on that list. And uh, so I, I feel like I had to include it here. 
Um, he's a, he's a producer. And if you look up filmmaker in the dictionary, it actually says producer or director. So producers work, uh, but he definitely is a creative force behind this movie and had to make the list because he's, I mean, I really wish that Tarantino would make this damn movie, but, uh, Lee Donowitz played by Saul Rupinek is number five. Nice. Nice. I, I have not seen that movie. I need this is one. this is why we did this list. I, I wrote down a shit ton of fictional film directors, <laughs> and I did not even remember that character. Uh, that this is why we do this. Coming home in a body bag. Uh all right. <laughs> That's great. All right, number. No, I'm going next. Number five on my list. This might be stretching the category a little bit, but I'm going with it because I think it works. Uh the uh, number five on my list is uh javi gutierrez better known as javi uh played by pedro pascal in the unbearable weight of massive talent nice yeah uh the the uh the assumed drug lord who all he wants to do is make movies uh and he wants to meet his his idol nick cage uh played by nick cage um and uh i mean their 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 bromance is one of the one of the best bromances like of of the last decade i could say on screen and uh spoiler alert they end up making their movie so he is a filmmaker i don't know if he directed it i think he might have just written it but um javi has to be uh on this list so he's my number five paddington 2 is extraordinary <laughs> paddington 2 i still need to see paddington 2 I, I haven't seen paddington 1 but i might just skip it and go to paddington 2 because of javi so you have to say it like that. You have to. Oh yeah, yeah, Javi. Um, so yeah, uh, that's my number five, Zach. Okay, so uh, yeah, that was a great one, and I, I I'm fully for uh, stretching this category. I, I said you could do amateur <laughs> filmmakers, you could do first time filmmakers, you could do filmmakers using not great equipment. Uh, so that uh, is the category of my number five pick is she's actually a film student, but based on the work that we see early on in her career, she has a very promising future. And her father, played by Adam Sandler, would agree with her. We're talking about Eliza Meyerowitz in the Meyerowitz's story, stories, played by Grace Van Patten. And Eliza is Adam Sandler's daughter. Uh, she's a genius girl. They wrote a song about it. And first of all, Meyerowitz stories, great movie. I, I rewatched it recently. Uh, very, very good movie. Uh, and um, Eliza in the movie is a film student, and her great kind of cinematic debut is a movie called Pagina Man, which is about a, a superhero that has both a penis and a vagina. And uh, she plays that character. And it's this kind of jump cutty like almost like beyond the valley of the vixens like russ meyer type thing with like some schlock exploitation she's very much like harnessing like a 70s energy to the movie it's by the way the funniest thing that noah bombach has ever done it's it's one of the great fake uh movies and by the end of meyerowitz stories uh she's actually flourishing quite nicely in her semi-autobiographical uh film career so i don't know what noah bombach was thinking with that character maybe she represents greta in some way i don't know but uh she's great and we need more grace van patten and uh, i i really like eliza meyerowitz it's not one i thought of uh, i like it i've not seen that movie i need to see that one Yes, All you right. do. Todd, number four. Okay. Uh, 
This part gets a little iffy, but it doesn't really matter. Number four is Donald <laughs> Kaufman from uh, Adaptation. Uh, so I was he, wondering if that was coming up. He wrote this movie called The Three, which we actually did name ourselves at the beginning episode of this podcast, which Terry was talking about earlier. <laughs> we, we, we did not actually stick with that for some reason. Uh, the movie that he made is like a serial killer movie about this like serial killer with multiple personality disorder. And Charlie isn't all that into it, but he says it's like civil meets dressed to kill after he realizes like, ah, screw it, he's going to make this movie anyway. Donald is super animated and uh, he's mainly the writer, but he definitely would direct this movie as well because I don't know who else would. Uh, it's speculation of how good a filmmaker he would actually be probably, but I, I always wanted to see this movie because it sounded just ridiculous and uh, I love adaptation. So Donald Kaufman, who is fictional, but he's got an Oscar nomination. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. Uh, yeah, I would. He's the only uh, fictional director with an Oscar nomination, right? Unless you count like those blacklisted filmmakers in the fifties, but you know, that's not as funny. There was one, there was one last year. I don't even remember who it was now that I was hoping was going to get a fictional. Was fictional it, uh, nomination. uh, was it, uh, um, oh gosh, I'm totally blanking. Uh, Soderbergh cinematographer or whatever, like Peter Andrews or whatever. No. Or... No, it wasn't that. There was someone I thought was going to get a screenplay nomination, and I forgot. I forget who it was, but he never was credited with with actually writing it. I don't remember. Anyways. I don't. I don't know if Donald Kaufman is a filmmaker. I think he's a writer. I mean, he he, he could have directed it though. He studies Robert McKee's story structure. He's all about the timeless struggle between man and horse. I feel like uh, I don't know. More... He doesn't actually have a movie, but he's trying to get this movie made. So. Okay, well, if we're going to accept Javi, we might as well accept another Cage character. I might have been thinking of Javi. Like, I, I think I think I might have been thinking of Javi getting a getting a screenplay uh, credit on uh, Unbearable Way to Massive Talent because they basically write that movie. But not that, I think one not of the went one of the prerequisites for this list should have been that they actually made a movie, which would disqualify some of our picks already. But whatever. Well, all you said was fictional filmmakers, so I didn't even use directors. I, I used, so I don't know. <laughs> all right, <laughs> number four on my list um, it is it, it's not it's not one character; it's a group of characters. I'm just gonna kind of go with it. Um, there, I think there was one that was like the main one, but I can't remember which one it was. So whatever. Uh, I'm going with the kids from Super Eight. Um, it, it's a it's a forgotten great movie of the 2010s. Uh, JJ Abrams kind of doing his, uh, his like ET thing, uh, and truly showing that he really just wanted to be Steven Spielberg. Um, but it's a great movie. I love this movie and it all starts out with these kids that just want to make a movie and they're making a movie and, uh, and it's, it's great. So you've got, there's like a group of like five kids that are all best friends that are making this movie all together. Um, the most notable uh, over the last 10, 11 years since that movie came out is obviously Elle Fanning. Uh, but uh, the kids from Super 8, I mean, kids making a movie. How how much better do you get than that? So that that's number four on my list. Yeah, I mean, we could this that could have been a whole subcategory is best kids who make movies. Yep, I don't absolutely. know where it would have gone, but. <laughs> I could think something. of maybe maybe four of them, five maybe. I don't know. I got so, I got one more in my honorable mentions. No, two more in my honorable mentions that would that would qualify for that list. But we'll get there later. Zach, number four. 
Okay, number four. So this is where I sometimes struggled with this list is that do I pick someone who actually is a filmmaker or a character who makes films but not as a not as a practicing filmmaker? This was sort of a struggle I had, but seeing as we're we're playing loose, fast and loose with the rules, I'm gonna do it. This is also technically a tie. Uh, I'm going to The Simpsons for my number four pick. My all-time favorite episode of The Simpsons is when they hold a film festival in Springfield. And so uh, the winner of that film festival was Barney Gumble for his film Pucahontas. And if you actually watch Barney's film, Barney is, of course, the drunk on the show who goes to Moe's and is drunk all day. Um, and if you watch Pucahontas, it's like actually a great movie. It has like it sort of like a Bergman element. There's like a little bit of Days of Wine and Roses. It's a semi-autobiographical portrait of a of a drunk person. It's in black and white. There's like operatic music in the background. It feels a little bit uh, Raging Bull esque at times. It's like a legitimately great movie. So based on that, Barney Gumble is a filmmaker, I suppose. And I'm putting him as a tie because the the other through line of that episode is that uh, Mr. Burns wants to commandeer the film festival, so he hires Steven Spielberg's non-union. Mexican equivalent, Senor Spielbergo, to make a movie called A Star is Burns, which is loosely based on Ben-Hur. It's like a mixture of Ben-Hur and Schindler's List that gets booed at the festival and does not win. Um, Homer votes for man getting hit by a football, by the way. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that episode. It's it's the best episode of The Simpsons. I, I'm not familiar with it, but I, I love the effort. Thank you. It's good. It's good. <laughs> Todd, number three. Uh, well, my number three is sticking with animation. It appeared in my best movies under 90 minutes list. And that is uh, Terrence and Philip from South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And so, I mean, it's unclear yeah, if they actually made the movie, but they're just the stars it of It says Asses. directed by Terrence. Okay. Asses of Fire is the movie. So uh, they, uh, they they really warp their the American children's minds. Like it's this musical that's stupid and juvenile, but. Uh, it actually got Cartman's mom to declare war on Canada. So it must have been pretty radical. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that's just because they're great filmmakers, I guess. Uh, the kids wanted to go see the movie over and over again. They kept singing, shut your f***ing face, Uncle You know, they just, I mean, Terrence and Philip are geniuses. I, I mean, I love that movie and I want to see Asses of Fire. That was on my list of movies I wish were real too. Cartman's mom's a bitch though, remember. <laughs> that's a good song too. It, it did bring about also an amazing uh, Oscars moment where Robin Williams sings Blame Canada. So I bet that's that a, was great. That's a great pick. I, I didn't pick it, but I did look up who the, who the director was of the Terrence and Phillip movie, Asses of Fire, and it says it was directed by Terrence. So a multi-talented Canadian superstar in our midst. <laughs> Three hours long, wasn't it? Was, was it not? <laughs> I, I don't remember that i think it was it was longer than indochine <laughs> <laughs> i will say though uh so blame canada was an oscar nominee from that movie and uh and i i, I need to shout out really quick the seattle mariners just completed a four-game sweep of the toronto blue jays and the canadian invasion as the, mm -hmm. the ballpark was filled mostly with Blue Jays fans, as it's the only time uh, the West Coast Blue Jays fans ever get a chance to see their team. And we swept them in four games. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. But were there any Terrence and Phillips, like, uh, you know, signs or whatever those, the, the big head things that you... <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> think so. How, however, a woman 
the other night did flip off the Mariner Moose. So there was mm-hmm. that. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah. And then and then immediately after it, uh, Eugenio Suarez hit a walk off homer to win the game. So I, I I think I think he was inspired. Anyways, all right, number three on my list. Uh, I'm going. I, I mean, this is this is kind of this is a movie, but it also is uh, is a Broadway show. I'm gonna just tie it all in. I'm going with uh, Mark Cohen from Rent, uh, oh, played on stage and in the in film by uh, Anthony Rapp. Uh, he is a he is a struggling filmmaker that is trying to make his own movies, make his own documentary about all sorts of different stuff. Uh, for a while, he gets a uh, he gets uh, distracted and uh, sells his soul to uh, to uh, I think what's called Buzzline. To, uh, to make some movies and just get a paycheck, um, film some TV stuff, but eventually he does quit and go back to making his own his own indie film, and they can't pay rent because all they want to do is do their own stuff. But uh, he's an amazing filmmaker, and the 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 end of the show and the end of the movie is Mark Cohen debuting his movie about him and his friends to him and his friends, and nothing screams like like. New York artist quite like having an audience of only the people that are in your film to be there for the debut of your film. So um, Mark Cohen from Rent, that's who I'm going with with number three. Was never getting there, but I I like how we're, there's going to be zero overlap, so it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so far, the, the six that you've said I mean, I wrote. I, I was thinking about Terrence and Philip as a joke, but the other five I would have never thought of. To- totally off the radar. That's good. That's good. All right, Zach, number three. Okay, so the, part of the inspiration for this list uh, was Jack Horner, but of course, as we talked about in our deep dive of Boogie Nights, uh, I share with Tarantino a fundamental problem with Jack Horner, which is that in spite of his aspirations to be a trend-setting, you know, iconoclastic director that breaks the mold, uh, he reduces himself to some really um, silly uh, titles. Spanish pantalones, I mean, come on. I feel like you give that speech at the beginning of the movie how you want them to sit in their, 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 you know, jizz juice in the theater and wait until the next uh, scene. You can't just follow it up with that garbage, right? So, uh, I can't, in good faith, put Jack Horner on my list, even though he's the inspiration for this category. But I can put on Amber Waves as my number three filmmaker because Amber Waves actually uh, makes some really good movies. Uh, if you go back and watch Boogie Nights, there is the seven-minute, and I watched it, seven-minute-long uh, documentary excerpt that PTA includes of uh, her documentary on Dirk Diggler, where he talks about, uh, you know, just like, uh, what is he? Uh, I was trying to look up the line, but, you know, just like uh, uh, Christopher Columbus in ancient Rome, you know, when they discovered America, you know, he, he's, he's heroic. And, uh, and we also find out that, uh, that uh, uh, Jack does not let uh, Dirk block his own scenes. And by the end of the movie, I mean, there's some really great cinematography in it. There's some great angles of Dirk, like, pondering and thinking. We get some interviews with Reed. We get some uh, great sort of nostalgia pieces and some great funky uh, music, disco music. And at the end of the movie, uh, she's now making a commercial for Don Cheadle's uh, audio store. So she has moved up quite a bit in the world of filmmaking. And uh, I would rather watch an Amber Waves production than a Jack Horner production because she actually takes it seriously. 
So that's sort of a rebuke to Tarantino and, and my criticism of the film. But Amber Waves at number five, uh, number three, uh, talented, uh, underrated uh, documentary, like Agnes Varda, worked in both documentary and <laughs> fiction, if you want to call it. Agnes well Varda and Amber Waves comparison. I love it. Exactly. Well played. Well played. All right. Todd, number two. Okay. Uh, my number two appeared in my characters who deserve a spinoff uh, power rankings. It is a, a maybe Fuge from Arrested Development. Um, she she uh, actually cons her way into working for this movie studio, uh, Tantamount Studios. Uh, she made a movie called Almost Cousins, which is clearly based on her relationship with George Michael. But she's like a rising star in the produ- uh, as a producer in the industry. Uh, she pitches a TV show about her own family to Ron Howard. And he says it'd be better as a movie. And then we kind of get the movie in season four. Season four was super weird. But uh, her career is kind of a mystery because it's all sort of a sham. But she's amazing. And she's my favorite character on the show. One of my five favorite characters in TV or movies of all time. Uh, maybe Fume K. She had to be on this list. Very nice. Very nice. I still I'm need a- to watch the rest. I may have to quit this podcast. I, I don't know if Todd's uh, is going to include the movie that I thought was going to be the slam dunk. <laughs> but I guess we'll have to see. All right. Number two on my list is uh, the character that uh, Zach just crapped on, and that is Jack Horner uh, from Boogie Nights. I mean, he had to pop up on at least one of our lists, and here he is for me. I mean, he's he's an icon. He's a legend. He, he's he's the one that uh, that revolutionized the industry and uh, and discovered. I mean, if it wasn't for Jack Horner, there would be no Amber Waves. So in that sense. I mean, there would be no Amber Waves. There'd be no Dirk Diggler. I thought about putting Dirk Diggler on the list because he, you know, he ends up becoming a, a bit of a filmmaker himself. But, um, mm. but I'm going Jack Horner. Jack Horner. He, uh, he, uh, he's my number two. But his movies suck. And you can even go look. Listen, go back to the movie which I was watching again this week. Go to the scene where they're at the pool party and we see uh, Little Bill's wife f-ing on the on the pavement. That exchange between Kurt and Little Bill, uh, Kurt says, um, Kurt, he says something on the lines of, Jack wants a minimalist approach, but very often that means more complex lighting. Jack doesn't understand filmmaking. He doesn't understand the idea of like three-point lighting and hard lighting and shadow. He Like the filmmaking terminology is kind of beyond him. Even the way that he tries to get Dirk to go uh, and, and be in his movies. It, it's not based on anything like tangible, you know? All he says is he just wants the audience to sit there until they spurt out that joy juice. I mean, that's not about the quality of the filmmaking. That's just about the audience. I, I don't know. I I have I have issues with it. And so does Tarantino. Listen to him talk about it. Zach doesn't like the movie because Zach is a of film teacher. Of course I like the movie. I doesn't like doesn't like great. Jack Horner. I just he doesn't like Jack, Jack Horner because a great filmmaker. Of course I love his character. So he's are a, we doing best a... filmmakers who are fictional or are we doing like our favorite characters who are fictional filmmakers? Like uh, <laughs> That was another <laughs> question I had. I tried so to I mean, mix the... both. <laughs> I think Jack Horner would be on my list of favorite filmmakers, but his film sucked. I mean, would you put Ed Wood on the list? You're going to tell me that he, Spanish Pantalones was a good Edward's movie? not fictional. I know he was... Uh, uh, more frustrating than Taika Waititi. Come on. <laughs> oh, I, in, in all fairness, Jack Horner is, is pretty much the non-negotiable. That's that's fair. Yeah, but he's my number two. So stay tuned, for, stay tuned for number one. 
Uh, all right, Zach, number two. Okay, my number two is uh, okay. We could well like my number five. She's in film school ostensibly. Actually, I could call this a tie technically. I'm going with Heather from the Blair Witch Project. Now, I thought about having <laughs> nice. a tie between Heather from the Blair Witch Project and Micah from Paranormal Activity. However, Micah is clearly not a filmmaker. He's a day trader. He puts the camera on the tripod at night and lets it run for eight hours. That's not filmmaking. He's also pretty toxic in a lot of ways. Um, and he deserved to die. Heather did not deserve to die. Heather was actually trying to make a good movie. Um, now, I will say, as a film teacher, I do have to critique. You know, I'm, I'm going to quietly judge her, like Todd's T-shirt. Uh, if you watch the first uh, 15 minutes of the movie when they're in Burkittsville, Boy, does she does she ask a lot of questions to those dumb townspeople. And her voice is all over that. And I gotta just say, Heather, if you turned in Blair Witch Project as a prod as a final or something, I, my notes back to her would be shut the hell up. Just let these people talk. They have a great story about the Blair Witch. Uh, but beyond that, if you get past the first 15 minutes, obviously she's a great filmmaker. I mean, she captures everything. And, uh, you know, yeah, the shaky cam is a little excessive. Yeah, it's a little grainy at times. The lighting's questionable and the dialogue is the dialogue. But it is maybe the greatest horror movie of all time. So hats off to Heather. I did not see Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, which I'm sure would have tanked my rating of her filmmaking ability. But uh, Heather, Heather R.I.P. was a great filmmaker in, in her one project. Have you heard the conspiracy theory that uh, the killers in Blair Witch Project are actually the, just the two other guys, and they they just they just play her to get rid How of her? How is that possible? Well, because the first one just disappears. He does make sounds in, somewhere in the forest, and then and then at at the end, all you see is the other one in the corner. What if what if the first one to disappear is the one? That they discovered. Well, that's the a testament to her great filmmaking that we could have that interpretation of the story. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. We'd have to uh, we'd have to actually watch Book of Shadows, Blair Witch Two, to, to maybe get some, which I would never want to do. That, that's a great call. I, I love that pick. That's that's awesome. She's a bad interviewer, though. She's like Werner Herzog. She learned interviewing from Werner Herzog, inserting herself into the story a little too much. That, well, well, there you go. That 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 is also a a brilliant uh, a brilliant deduction so all right todd let's get to it number one okay my number one appeared on a list we did apparently called american movies with zero oscar nominations i don't remember doing that list but number i think the number one on it was john l sullivan from sullivan's travels uh, i knew he, I, yes yeah. i knew that was gonna yeah be that was gonna be on he list. made he used to make like these literally small comedies like Ants in Your Pants 1939, but he thinks those movies are below him, but they have a little sex in them. Um, but he, he, uh, I don't know, he decides he wants to make the great big, the great depression movie. He's going to call it Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, he, he, so he takes his RV to the streets so he can live with the homeless so he can experience true suffering. And I, I love that, that idea. He's like, he doesn't want to make musicals and comedies anymore. So the Coen brothers are like, hey, we're going to make a movie called The Brother Where Art Thou. We're going to make it a musical and a comedy about the Great Depression. But then somehow the definitive Great Depression movie actually was a comedy called Sylvan's Travels. And so it's like probably the meta is thing that happened in, in the, like in before like 2000. But um, it's, it's one of the best movies ever made. And Sullivan is a little loony and he's naive, but he clearly had talent and commitment because he he goes and works for a chain gang for the sake of his art and i think that makes him a great filmmaker nice 
Nice. So you're going to have Terrence on your list, but not Tibby? I mean, I come ever, on. I don't mention. Terrence, but not Tibby. I, I, I don't know what to do with you anymore, man. Didn't even make the top five. That was supposed to be a slam dunk. I have a lot of good honorable mentions too. There are a lot of good honor. I, I would agree. The, the, this is a, this is one of those lists that's made for honorable mentions. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. My number one <coughs> is, I mean, all right. So it's a filmmaker. He doesn't really make movies though. He makes television, but I'm getting, But he is by far the best because if you're able. Um to take I know what you're doing. a 24 hour television feed and make it engaging and make it the most watched television show on television, then you are an amazing filmmaker. And that is Christoph from the Truman show nice. uh, played, played beautifully by Ed Harris. I mean, this is one of the few times where in, in a movie you're actually able to see a director work and, and him being able to like go because he's, He's he's directing live television and he's he's got to go between cameras and 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 direct the panning, direct the the close ups on on live, just, you know, unscripted feed. And he does it beautifully and marvelously. And the whole thing is his brainchild. And when it came down to it, there was no one else it could be. It had to be Christoph. Christoph had to be number one for me. It was it was the easiest call of them all. So Christoph from the Truman Show, that's my number one. It's an inspired choice. Is he a filmmaker though? I'm sure he believes he's a Come filmmaker. Come on, he's a he he's, he's direct. He's directing the whole thing. I what is he? What's the line that he says to Truman? He says, "I'm a I'm a direct." I don't think he calls himself a filmmaker though. Is is what I'm getting at. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, but he—he's—he to totally is a filmmaker. He's basically forming a documentary, and, and if documentarians are filmmakers, then he's a filmmaker. All right, Zach, what's your number one? Okay, my number one is uh, also younger people filmmakers. Um, I guess you could say it's a documentary they're making, a mockumentary. It's a documentary. Todd's gonna hit himself when uh, he hears it. It is Peter Maldonado and Sam Eklund from American Vandal. Oh. They <laughs> are the greatest filmmakers, fictional filmmakers of all time. Now listen, okay, American Vandal, you've got Dylan Maxwell, you know, this kid unfairly accused of spray painting dicks on cars. He did not do it, okay? He was pulling another prank during that 32-minute window. He couldn't have been at the school while they were there. And Peter... Sist as the filmmaker, but also, you know, the narrator, he breaks down the entire argument of the school board and shows systematically why each of those points is wrong and why Dylan Maxwell is innocent. And in the process, a la Woodward and Bernstein, a la Norma Ray, a la, you know, China Syndrome, uncovers this vast conspiracy theory that everybody is going against Dylan Maxwell, in spite of the fact that when he draws his dick and balls, he draws the, the, the dick hair. Right. And there's no dick here on the on the dick and, on the dicks on the spray painted cars. Anyway, uh, Peter and Sam are a great filmmaking duo. They work at the high school uh, uh, media morning media show. 
Um, they have some great filmmaking. So the, the motion graphics is amazing. In the second season, they get hired. They get called on by a school in Washington to investigate. Uh, what was it called? I can't remember the, the fart mullet or whatever. I can't remember the the, the, the brownout. The brownout. Thank you. Um, Peter and Sam are the best fictional filmmakers. And I know Terry doesn't know what we're talking about, but American Vandal is uh, one of the best, maybe the best thing that Netflix has ever done. And uh, it's actually legitimately great. Peabody award-winning show and Peter and Sam. I, I wish I had students like them. I do have students like them, but without the motion graphics. Oh, uh, yeah, and the dicks on that. cars. All right. Let's, uh, let's, let, let's, uh, wrap this up five to one and then go over some honorable mentions. Todd. Number five, Lee Donowitz from True Romance. Number four, Donald Kaufman from Adaptation. Number three, Terrence and Phillip from South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Number two, Maybe Fume K from Arrested Development. And number one, John L. Sullivan from Sullivan's Travels. And for me, number five is Javi from The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. <laughs> you gotta say it like that. You have to. Uh, number four is The Kids from Super 8. Number three, Mark Cohen from Rent. Number two, Jack Horner from Boogie Nights. And number one, Kristoff from The Truman Show. All right. My number five was Eliza Meyerowitz from Meyerowitz's Stories. Uh, number four, Barney Gumble and Senor Spielbergo from The Simpsons. Number three, Amber Waves from Boogie Nights. Number two, Heather from The Blair Witch Project. And number one, Peter Maldonado and Sam Eklund from Hanover High in American Vandal. All right, Todd, honorable mentions. Uh, so I had, ones that have been mentioned, I had Tibby, Tibby Rollins from uh, The Sister of the Traveling Pants, of course, and Jack Horner from Boogie Nights. Uh, I also have Billy Walsh, who is the director of the ridiculous uh, epic Medellin in Entourage. Uh, Damian Cockburn in Tropic Thunder is played by Steve Coogan. He's the director of the whole thing who dies. Uh, Lawrence Lorenz. Who plays is played by Ray, Fia Ray Fiennes in Hail Caesar. Yes. Mm, Buddy one. Bowfinger, of course, from Bowfinger. Uh, Abed in Community. Uh, the Truffaut character in Day for Night. Ferrand. <laughs> um, Jay Berman, which is the Christopher Guest character in For Your Consideration. And also Kevin Bacon in the Christopher Guest movie, The Big Picture. Nick, uh, his name's Nick Chapman. Adam Kesher is the director in Mulholland Drive, played by Justin Thoreau, even though he's probably not that great of a director. And the one I wanted to put on the list, but he, uh, uh, but I couldn't quite do it, is uh, Pete from Knocked Up because he gets those Spike Lee angles, and uh, you can tell he really knows how to shoot that shit. Nice, nice. All right, on my honorable mention, uh, one that I am shocked was not on Todd's list. Like this had to be on Todd's list. It's Eli from The Girl Next Door. Oh, yeah. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Think Come Meryl Streep, Sophie's Choice. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that, that is a that is a yeah that's a, that is a misstep by me. That should have been yeah. at least number two. Yeah, and and he and and uh, he would have been on the the kid filmmakers along yeah. with fourth grade from mid nineties. He should have been <laughs> yeah. by Where now. was he, Todd? Come, Come on. on. Hey, Come I on. had a kid. I had maybe Fume K. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. Who else do I have here? I also had Lawrence Lorenz from Hail C Hail Caesar. Weather to twer. <laughs> um uh jeremy brunel from what just happened you never shoot the dog to end the movie um yeah. uh let's see here i've got uh 
Peter Appleton from The Majestic, Jim Carrey's character. He was a screenwriter. He wasn't a director, but I, I got to mention him. Um, another one, I don't know if it necessarily counts, but it's a great it's a great mention. Robin Williams' character from The Final Cut. Uh, he's he's an editor, but I would say he's a filmmaker because he's taken a, a person's entire life and making it a two hour mil- movie. Um, let's see here. Then you've got uh, you've got Roscoe Dexter from Singing in the Rain. Another one that needs mentioning. Um, yeah, it should be on your list, Terry. Yeah, yeah. Te- teaching yeah. teaching Gene Hagen to make sure she talks into the microphone. Uh, discovered Don Lockwood, uh, and then you have some uh, some accidental filmmakers like um like dummy from iron man the which is the arm like his his little robotic arm which is which films him it's like the found footage of him testing out the iron man suit for the first time uh then uh of course uh i'm watching breaking bad so jesse or walt or badger or whoever has a camp corner in the rv in season one of breaking bad uh is definitely a filmmaker none of us have mentioned and it needs to be mentioned the uh, another great found footage filmmaker, Forrest Whitaker from Vantage Point. Of course. Of course, he has to be mentioned here. And then I have a list of guys who don't necessarily count, but need to be mentioned. Uh, and that is uh, Jim Lovell in Apollo 13. Fred uh, Hayes Show. What? It was the Fred Hayes Show. <laughs> it was the Fred Hayes Show, but he was the one behind the camera. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola in Apocalypse Now. Uh, you've got Rob Reiner in This Is Final Tap and Steven Spielberg in Goldmember. Okay, but Francis Ford Coppola isn't fake. I, that's what I'm saying. They don't ma- they don't necessarily. Rob Reiner was be- fake. Marty he was playing a fictional character. Was a fictional director who was. I, I would say Coppola and Apocalypse Now was playing a fictional character, and so and so is Steven Spielberg and Goldmember. But you know, uh, and, and if is it, if a real filmmaker is making a fictional movie, does it count for this list? That's it, deep. If so, if so, every trailer at the start of Grindhouse counts. <laughs> Except for the one, except for Machete. Robert Rodriguez on Machete, because that actually became a movie. <laughs> All right, Zach, honorable mentions. Uh, Marty DeBergi, I said. Uh, Ricky Fitz. Um, yeah. Aubrey Plaza and Black Bear. Where, where were, were you on that one, Todd? Uh, the uh, production team in The Dream Factory and Inside Out. Uh, Rory Culkin in Mean Creek. Uh, Dean Stockwell, who shot some amazing footage at the beach with Harry Dean Stanton and Nastasia Kinski in, in Paris, Texas. Again, amateur filmmaker on Super 8, but uh, looked pretty good. Guido in Cinema Paradiso. Ileana Douglas in Ghost World. Quentin Tarantulantino in Bojack Horseman because he made Mr. Peanut Butter's <laughs> Hollywood Heist. Yes, Paul did. Buckman, played by Paul Reiser in Mad About You. Uh, Matthew Broderick in The Freshman. The Licorice Pizza director, played by Tom Waits. I don't remember his name. Um, I also wrote down Michael Scott for some of the same reasons you were saying because oh. Michael Scott he made you know st- uh, straight out of uh, Scranton and whatever like some some great and and actually what, what, was, the, what was the one was it was it like Operation Midnight or Sunday? well okay I'm not gonna that was a dumb episode but in all seriousness <laughs> the episode where they filmed the promo for Dunder Mifflin. Michael's idea is much better than the one that they that the, they ultimately uh, have to go with because corporate tells them to go with. Michael's original idea that they shoot with the paper airplane is actually a really good uh, promo video. Um, Don't forget about diversity tomorrow because today is almost over. That's true too. <laughs> uh, Chaka Luther King and Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. Alois von Eichberg, the director of Nation's Pride and Inglorious Bastards. Um, Alan Smithy. 
And uh, finally, yeah. um, we got to give a shout out to Bob Anders, Bob Baker in Argo. He wasn't a real director. He was, uh, you know, the fake director of Argo, uh, who really didn't well know anything played. about uh, filmmaking. So he's like a fake, fake director. It's like he, it's like mind blowing. But it, but it's like a real fake director because he was a real fake person director no, making that... a fake movie in a real movie in real life. I was trying to figure out how that worked. I couldn't figure out which character it was, so I just said eh, whatever. <laughs> I spent too much time looking that up. <laughs> All right, I have I have one more shout out, and it 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 came. All right, so so th this just came out, but uh, my my other shout out is the the cast of Clerks in Clerks Three, because apparently Clerks Three, if you look watch the new trailer that just dropped like yesterday or the day before, Clerks Three is about the cast of Clerks making the first movie of Clerks. <sighs> Yeah. So, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's very James and Bob strike back, but <laughs> yes, I mean that is a that's a great pick cuz like Randall is definitely going to be a great filmmaker. Yes. Yes. I also forgot well, to Well, yeah, it's it's Clerks that was what he's about to make, so. I forgot to mention the Japanese commercial director in Lost in Translation. But yes, I, I thought about was, him too. I don't know his name, but that he I don't know if he's a filmmaker, but he definitely has a lot to say. Is that all he said? I feel like there was more in that. I don't think all right. what we're talking about. Um, yeah, Adam's list. Adam's let's list. This is Let, let's try this. We're not going to get any of them. I don't know. I don't know if we There's will. There's no okay. overlap in our list. There's not going to be any overlap anywhere. <laughs> all right, Todd, what do you got? Okay, number five, Kristoff from The Truman Show. Number four, Zach Brown from Zach and Mary Make a Porno. Nice. Number three, Mike and Jerry from Be Kind Rewind. Because they remake all of the movies. Uh, number two, maybe uh, Fume K from Arrested Development. And number one, Jack Horner from Boogie Nights. All right. My list for Adam. Number five, Damian Cockburn from Tropic Thunder. Number four, Kristoff from The Truman Show. Number three, Borat, which hasn't been mentioned yet. Um, okay. uh, number two, Adam Maybe Kesher more. from Mulholland Drive. And number one, Jack Horner from Boogie Nights. Back. Number five, Cheryl Dunye from The Watermelon Woman. Number four, Adam Kesher in Mulholland Drive. Number three, Damian Cockburn in Tropic Thunder. Number two, Chaka Luther King in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. And number one, Jack Horner. All right, here we go. Adam's list. Honorable mentions. Uh, the Grinch, when he does his best Ron Howard impersonation in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, Bobby Bowfinger in Bowfinger and uh, Jackie Treehorn in The Big Lebowski oh, would nice. be my number one, but he's more of a producer of pornography. I was thinking about <laughs> uh, I was thinking about The Big Lebowski. Carl, does Carl Hungus count as a filmmaker? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. All right. I'm, I'm wearing I'm wearing my dude shirt though, so there's in that. honor of Thor. Exactly. Only frame of reference these millennials know. It goes from dad bod to god bod. You know we're uh, millennials. It's Gen Z is what you're making fun of. Yeah, Gen Z. Okay, same thing. No. <laughs> Spoken like a true Gen Xer. Uh, number five on Adam's list. Roman Bridger, director of Stab 3 from Scream 3. Oh, that's an Adam pick. Uh, number four, Charles Kazan. 
director of an unnamed zombie movie in Super 8. I'm not the only one that had Super 8. There's some overlap. Number three, Damien Cockburn from Tropic Thunder. Uh, number two, Hal Weidman from America's Sweethearts. And number one, Jerry and Mike, director of countless movies of films and endless filmography from Be Kind Rewind. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I had his number one? So I had his number <laughs> freaking one. Because he never even mentioned Jack Horner. Nope. We all said he was going to have Jack Horner number one, and then he doesn't even mention it. What are you even doing, Adam? What are What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm winning for the first time actually in a while. I mean, we we all got one, I think, right? But yeah, you, you guys got, got the, got the Tropic Thunder one. How did he not have the Mulholland Drive director? That felt like an seriously. Outfit. He just watched that movie for the first time recently. I can't believe nobody else had mentioned Zach and Mira make a porno until I predict that, but. Because Zach Brown really, really was showing his directing chops in that one. Um, okay, there were just I have so many. Like this was such a great list because I what we had one overlap, and that was the, Super Eight. The guys yeah. in Be Kind Rewind <laughs> are terrible filmmakers. I mean, they make they actually make Jack Corner look like a good filmmaker. That's, that's they're but they sell a lot of movies. Like the 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 people of the town love. They don't their even movies. try. They should. They they have they have to remake the whole movie in like a week. Like I mean, they 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 love their movies too. All right, Todd, update the score for us. Uh, I have forty two. Zach has twenty six, and Terry has twenty five. Okay. So Todd gets and, to pick our next oh, and category in a couple weeks. Adam, and Adam has, has one because Adam has one exactly. <laughs> All right, let's move on to trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And I won trivia last time, so I got to pick some movies for you guys to watch. Uh, we are going to start with... We're going to start with Zach. Zach, tell us what you watched. Okay, so I had to watch Wolfwalkers from uh, 2020. Not Streetwalkers, Wolfwalkers. And Wolfwalkers is an animated movie that was put out by Apple TV Plus in the era before they were winning Oscars, but it was an Oscar-nominated animated film. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a movie uh, that is made at, from... Um, they, uh, I'm looking for the production company. I can't find it. But the filmmakers are the f- same filmmakers who made The Secret of Kells. I believe they're Irish. Um, and this is sort of very, an, very much Irish. <laughs> this is sort of an Irish folklore story set in 1650 about um, a small kind of farming community, agrarian community, um, and uh, they are um, trying to expand. They're trying to build up crops, but wo- they keep on having wolf attacks. And uh, there's a young girl in the movie. Uh, her name is Robin, and uh, she sort of uncovers the secret to why the wolves seemingly both attack, but then there's a mysterious force that uh, prevents them from attacking. And, and the force that's preventing them from attacking is from, from these group, this group called the Wolfwalkers. Uh, I really love this movie. This was a fantastic choice by Terry. Uh, the, and first of all, you can sort of pick apart the story a little bit. It has a lot of elements of 90s Disney in it. It's got Pocahontas and Beauty and the Beast, and there's even a little bit of Avatar in it, especially with how the characters, um, I guess not too much unlike 
Natalie Portman in Thor, terrible connection, but they fall asleep and then become a wolf. Kind of like how Natalie Portman somehow becomes a, 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 a god when she is asleep or with her hammer. Anyway, that's a bad comparison. But uh, the truth is, um, give or take the story, the story's fine. But the visuals in this movie are amazing. I mean, this movie has such a unique style. It's 2D animation, but when you watch it, there's so much like going on in the background. It feels almost like you're looking at like a Bruegel painting or something like some one of those old like Vermeer, like mid, you know, mid like 1600s paintings or frescoes. There's so much detail and there's always movement going on. And the filmmakers are like really adept. I mean, they do a lot of things with split screens and aspect ratios. They kind of throw out the whole arsenal. And it's not in a way to show off anything, but in a way to enhance the the emotions of the characters. Um, and it's kind of a timeless story too. It's a story about tolerance. It's a story about uh, how the, you know, the, the, the settlers in the movie are, you know, they're very greedy. They're, there's not, it's not a stretch of ima- imagination to say that's sort of a, a, a post-colonialist fable in a lot of ways. There's sort of an indigenous spirit sort of going on in the movie that I really appreciate. Um, and, uh, it's just a, a, an awesome, awesome animated movie. So, um, I'm giving it a high three and a half stars. I feel like it's a little bit lengthy at times. And, uh, I don't, I, the resolution to me felt a little bit like, again, a, tr- a little too much of a traditional climax between good and evil. And I thought the movie was actually better than that. Um, but that being said, just for, again, again, for a purely visual standpoint, just an awesome movie to watch and absorb. And, uh, it's a reminder that, you know, as as a, a Gen Xer, as you guys just accused me of, you know, I sometimes bemoan the loss of great kids movies. You know, we grew up with some awesome um, kids movies that were made by serious filmmakers in the 90s, like Secret of Rowan Inish and The Secret Garden and um, uh, several others, uh, Little Women in the 90s. Great live action movies. I do think this generation of kids have some truly great animated movies. And this is one that, again, I wouldn't call it a kid's movie. It's timeless. I think adults would like it just as much as kids. And uh, it's great that it got nominated for Oscars. It really does kind of make Disney Pixar movies look silly in retrospect, especially movies like Lightyear, which are just sellouts. So awesome movie. Great choice, Terry. I encourage everybody to watch it. And uh, I just... Really, really awesome animations to, to to watch. Unlike any animated movie visually that I can think of. Awesome, awesome. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you loved it because, yeah, I, I love this movie too. I I think when we revealed our 2020 top tens, I think it was in my top ten. Since then, it's dropped back to like 12th or 13th, just because I saw some other movies that that surpassed it. But yeah, it's a brilliant movie, and it's one my kids love. They ask they ask for Wolfwalkers all the time. That's good. I would um, think I would think it's a movie probably more suited for older kids because it has again I think some some metaphors, some sort of contemporary allegorical references a little bit. Did Soul, was it did Soul beat it? I can't remember what was the film that beat it. Uh I think so. Let me look here. It's better than Soul. It should have beat Soul. Should have beat whatever Disney Pixar movie won that year. Uh 20 yeah, 2020 I'm pretty sure Soul won. Yeah, Soul won. Beat Onward, Wolfwalkers, Over the Moon, and Shaun the Sheep, Farmageddon. But I, I'm I'm glad you liked it. I, it. It was one I, I I assigned you, and I'm like, well, I hope he likes this one that I like. Non so. non traditional, uh, non stupid animated movies. I will always go for. In part because at this point in my life, I teach animation. 
not that I uh, am any good at animation, but uh, I love uh, animated movies that, again, can, you know, break the break the mold in terms of what a movie can look like. And this movie just looks unlike any other animated movie I've seen. I love how it's intentionally rough around the edges in its right. animation. Right. It doesn't, it's not smooth. There's no glossiness. There's no reflection. It looks sometimes like scattered, almost like ink blots. I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, you can see the sketches move through the animation. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's just really, really cool. The, the visuals with it. Good. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked it. Yes. I won one. Cool. All right. So that's Wolfwalkers. Todd, what did you watch and what did you think? Well, I mean, I, I did like Wolfwalkers too, but next time you review a movie that you like, don't compare it to Thor Love and Thunder because it's yes. <laughs> probably not the best <laughs> idea. Um, my, uh, I watched uh, the 2021 movie directed by Valdemir Johansson called Lamb. Why was oh, I the only one that has seen nice. this up to this point? This is what know. I want to know, but tell, tell me what you thought of Lamb. Uh, so the actors Hilmir Schneer Guanason and Numi Rapaz play... <laughs> Ingvar and Maria, they're a couple of like sheep farmers in Iceland who uh, discovered that one of their sheep had a baby and it's like a sheep-human hybrid. Uh, the baby has like a sheep head and one sheep leg, but uh, the rest is human. And so they decide they're going to keep it as their own and raise it as a child. And then Ingvar's brother Petur, played by Bjorn Hjelnir Haraldsson, uh, comes along and he uh, is like critical and just like trying to get them to like stop the madness. But uh, you know, the couple refuses uh, the end of the, the movie is just bizarre. And I, I could never really get on top of what it was doing. Um, it, it's listed as a horror movie and the horror aspects are pretty weird. It's really like a quiet movie overall, but uh, it, there's some like really random shock value. That's eerie. It's just like disturbingly extraordinary things happening in really ordinary circumstances. Um, I think it starts out pretty similar to like cow, which is like 20 minutes of like, you've trying to figure out what exactly you're watching and they get a semblance of like what the, what, what is exactly the tone is. Uh, it could have been this like really weird, like dark comedy, like a Quentin Depew movie, like rubber, but it's not, it plays it very seriously. It's the, one of the co-writers is the, uh, the writer of the Northman, which uh, if that gives you an indication of the tone you're looking for in this movie, it's really beautifully shot. It looked like, a, a hidden life almost into the landscapes uh, like a, like a really good, you know, Malick movie, the lines between reality and fantasy are really blurred. The, the director, it's his first movie. And uh, he's, I looked and he's worked under like Clint and Ridley Scott and Aronofsky. Like uh, he, he's got a really interesting career following this. Like uh, he, he's not a, he hasn't directed anything, but he's worked in other areas of film before this I, I didn't know exactly the movie was trying to say honestly but uh it works and the, it, it depends on the context of what you're actually looking for in the movie i'm giving it three stars i i actually really enjoyed this and i could see myself watching it again just to kind of get more of a sense of like what exactly that was but it, it was it was something and it was cool yeah yeah i uh i saw this movie in theaters and i wrote a review of it and i i went back and looked at it i gave it three and a half stars and and tell me if this if this sounds like your experience with it, Todd. I said uh, for such a subtle and quiet film, it does slowly build suspense, especially in the third act, as it leads to a completely bonkers, unexpected ending. I've been processing it for about 24 hours now, and I'm still not fully sure what to make of it. At the same time, I can't shake it or get it out of my head. It's left me dumbfounded, yet fascinated, confused, yet enthralled. And it's yet another example of how A24 is consistently the most interesting studio putting out films right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's pretty much right on. It's, it's almost like the green Knight or something like that. In that yeah, way. yeah. 
it, it's so weird, but it, yeah, you just can't help but be fascinated by it. My favorite thing about it was the uh, A24 logo as cheap. Yes. It did have an amazing trailer that made you go, what the hell is this? <laughs> I like all these animal movies. You know, we got pig, we got lamb, we got goat, we got first cow. Let's, uh, let's well, then this year goat was there's no, go there's dog. Yeah, dog there you go. Is, isn't there, isn't there a, a, a movie this goat. year that's just called cow. That's a documentary. Yeah. The Andrea Arnold movie. Yeah. 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 yeah that's what I was saying. Like you it got reminds cow, me you got first cow how it started. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good. Well, I'm glad you like that one. That's that's two for two this time. I, I did well this time. I'm, Wolf Walkers and Lamb. Wolf Walkers and Lamb. <laughs> More animal movies. Episode. <laughs> well, and I assigned Adam Swan Song. So stay tuned for there the next <laughs> next uh, daily notes. He's going to report on what he thought of Swan Song. So hopefully I'm not the only one that likes it and made it my number two of the year. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> let's. Let's get into actual trivia here. So for trivia, I, I liked the last time I hosted trivia, we did a traditional Oscars trivia, and I thought that went pretty well. So we're going to try that again. And this is going to be a, a James Con tribute Oscar trivia. So here's where we're starting. Uh, we got two years here, and we're going to start with you James Con. again. We James Con was born in 1940. So we are starting with 1940. I, I This one's going to be tough for you guys, but we're going to give it a shot. Uh, the one thing that's nice about this is 1940, back then, they just nominated whatever the hell they wanted, and as many as they wanted outside of the, the above-the-line categories, like there were like 10 songs nominated. There were like 15 things nominated for sound. I mean, they, they nominated whatever they wanted. And however many they wanted. So there were 59 movies from 1940 nominated for an Oscar. How many movies were made that year? <laughs> so uh, we've got we've got a lot to go through here, depending on how well you guys can remember how 1940 went. Um, if you are able to come up with a nominee, you get a point. If you're able to come up with one that won, you get two points. So that's that's how the rules work. Anything that was nominated or that won, uh, you get a point for in any category. So, like I said, there were 59 movies nominated for an Oscar. And these are 1940 movies for the ceremony that happened in 1941. All right. So we are going to start with Todd. Rebecca. Rebecca, you get two points for that. It uh, was nominated for a bunch and won a bunch, including Best Picture. Zach. The it won two, by the way. It won two. It won two, but you're right. You only get two points. So. The Grapes of Wrath uh, was nominated for a bunch. It won several, including Supporting Actress and Director. So that is two points for Zach. Todd. The Philadelphia Story. The Philadelphia Story is correct. It was nominated for a bunch. One actor for Jimmy Stewart and adapted screenplay. Two points for Todd. Zach. 
Pinocchio. Pinocchio is correct. It was nominated twice and won both of them for original song and original score. Two points for Zach. Todd. The Great Dictator. The Great Dictator was nominated for five Oscars, including picture, actor, supporting actor, original screenplay, and original score, but won none of them. So Todd gets one point. Zach. Kitty Foyle. Kitty Foyle was nominated five times and won Best Actress for Ginger Rogers. Zach gets two points. It takes a lead. Todd. Uh, foreign Correspondent. Foreign Correspondent was nominated for Best Picture, as well as five other times, but did not win anything. So you get one point. We are tied, and it goes to Zach. Well, it was one of those Walter Brennan wins, I believe, for Supporting Actor. And I'm going to go with The Westerner. The Westerner is correct. It was nominated three times, including a win for Supporting Actor by Walter Brennan. Good call. Two points for Zach. Todd. Yeah, I don't have any more. Todd's done. Zach, you have any more? Increase your lead. Uh, I don't think I. Uh, Forty Second Street was that nineteen forty? Uh, no. All right. All right. So, uh, let's see here. Once I think we did. Missed, we did. We uh, did. That was uh, impressive. That was yes. impressive. Especially under um, the conditions we are in. You, <laughs> podcast. Uh, yeah, let's see here. So some that you missed. Abe Lincoln in Illinois was an oh, actor well, nominee. Classic. Um, Arise My Love was a winner. Uh, let's see Arise here. My what love. else yes. would you have potentially I wrote known? down The Great Lie. Because didn't Mary Astor win for that? But I think that was the following year. The so. Great Lie was not. The winner for original screenplay was The Great McGinty. Oh, well, there um, you go. Preston Sturgis. Um, let's see here. Uh, a winner, best editing, went to Northwest Mounted Police. Um, my Favorite Wife was on here. Our Town was a picture and actress nominee, as well as a couple others. Uh, let's see here. Uh, an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice won art direction. Uh, let's see here. Strike up the band one. What sound. about the? Did, did we did the John Ford movie that we come to the stable? Did, was I was gonna say, how thing? about the Long Voyage Home? Yeah, the Long which Voyage was Home. But I guess picture, no. adapted screenplay, cinematography, editing, special oh, effects, and original score. There we go. Yeah. Just thought of it. Uh, the letter was nominated for picture, actress for Betty Davis, sporting actor, director. Yeah, um, when in doubt, just go with a Betty Davis. Wasn't Betty Davis nominated pretty much every year in the 30s and 40s? Yeah, if I could have said a name, I would have said there, Betty there Davis. There we go. But... Yeah. King Vidor probably the got nominated that Baghdad year. Got a few, the Thief of Baghdad got three wins. Uh, Tin Pan Alley got a win. Anyways. All right. But I think for 1940, you guys did really well. You guys did really well. Okay, we got one more year. Zach has a an 8-6 to six lead. And he gets to start out for 1982. The reason we're going 1982 is because James Conn was 82 years old when he passed away. So we're going to 1982. 
uh, for that. There were 34 movies nominated uh, in 1982. Again, this is the 1982 movies that were nominated for the Academy Awards ceremony that happened in 1983. Uh, So, and again, if you say something that was nominated, you get one point. If you say something that won, you get two points. And we start with Zach. Gandhi. Gandhi was the big winner of the night. It got best picture, best actor, best director, screenplay, cinematography, art direction, costume design, and editing was also nominated for sound, makeup, and score. Got a whole bunch of stuff. That is correct. Two points for Zach. Todd. Sophie's Choice. Sophie's Choice. So think Sophie's Meryl Streep, Sophie's Choice. Uh, That is correct. Two points because, yes, Meryl Streep did win and it got nominated four other places. Zach. An Officer and a Gentleman. An Officer and a Gentleman was nominated one, two, three, four, five, six times and won twice for Supporting Actor Louis Gossett Jr. and Original Song. Two points for Zach. Todd. Um, E.T. E.T. was nominated a bunch and won four Oscars. Uh, all below the line were for the wins, but it was nominated for picture and director and original screenplay. Uh, so two points for Todd. Zach. Tootsie. <clears throat> Tootsie. Got a whole bunch of nominations and one win for Jessica Lange, supporting actress. Peter co-star Terry Garf for supporting actress. Two points for Zach. Todd. Missing. Missing. Uh, four nominations and a win for adapted screenplay. Two points for Todd. Zach. The verdict. The verdict. One, two, three, four, five nominations. No wins. So one point for Zach. Nominated for picture, actor, supporting actor, director, and adapted screenplay. Five above the line nominations, but no wins. Thought. Travesty. Yep. I want to say Tron. Tron had two nominations, costume design and sound. That is correct. One point for top. Blade Runner. Blade Runner got two nominations for art direction and visual effects. No wins. One point for Zach. Todd. Um, Rocky 3. Rocky 3 was nominated once for Eye of the Tiger original song. It did not win. It lost to Officer and a Gentleman. But uh, Todd gets a point. Zach. Um, I think there's definitely still some here that you can get. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Um, Todd's favorite movie wasn't nominated that year. I don't think Winner got a nomination. Um, uh, I don't think Moonlighting got a nomination, even though that's a really good movie. Um. Uh, I think Jack Lemmon was nominated for something that year, but I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, let's go with The Fox and the Hound. Was that 82? The Fox and the Hound is incorrect. Dang it. 
feel like that was Disney movies got song nominations all the time. I don't know. Todd, you are down two. Well, Diner was nominated, right? Diner was nominated ah. for original screenplay. Lame. That is correct. So that's one point. You have another one. I think I already said the Jack Lemon movie. Um <laughs> need an answer. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything else. Does not have anything else. Oh Zach, by one point you win trivia. All right. The ones you guys could have gotten. Um, the film adaptation of Annie got two nominations that year. Uh, das Boot. Ah, that, that was a big one you missed. Um, uh, you forgot that Jessica Lange was a double nominee that for year Francis. for Francis. I, I, I thought about Francis. I thought that was a different year, though. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Poltergeist got three nominations. Um, La Traviata was a double nominee. For was Peter O'Toole nominated? Awesome was, design. Was that Peter O'Toole was nominated for my favorite year. Ah, okay, I was going to say mm. The Ruling Class, so I'm glad I didn't say it. it was one of um, his nominations. Let's see here. What else did you miss? You missed uh, Charles Durning was nominated for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. There we go. Um, you had two nominations for John Lithgow and Glenn Close oh, for The World According to Garp. Garp. Should have got that. You had a ton of nominations and a win for Victor Victoria. There we go. Um, the foreign language winner was Volver uh, Empazar. Um, Very memorable. That, but uh, yeah, there you go, Zach. You've been complaining for for months how you've not won trivia in a long time. Yeah, and I should have said diner. So you should have said diner. You gave him thinking. that last point. Yeah, I, I know. So, uh, <laughs> but you still won by one. And so you get to host trivia next time and you get to assign us something to watch. So congratulations. Finally. Finally. The world is as it should be. All right. And you get to start us off with your quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. So my quote comes from the late, great Jimmy Kahn a.k.a. Buddy the Elstad. And uh, he said, marriages are like tornadoes. There's all this blowing and sucking at the beginning, and at the end, you lose your house. I think every quote I'm going to have from here on out is going to be like that. So just be ready to edit it, Terry, okay? Okay. I think last week right. I had a quote like that. All right, we'll play. That's we'll a great play. quote, though. That is a good quote. All right, I'll go next. Uh, my quote comes from one of my favorite... Um, uh, fictional filmmakers and this comes from uh from mark cohen from rent uh this is lyrics to one of the songs uh and he says um why are entire years strewn on the cutting room floor of memory when single frames from one magic night forever flicker in close-up on the 3d imax of my mind that's poetic that's pathetic so nice. i mean that that that's that's a filmmaker right there. It's like, hey, that that actually worked pretty well. No, that that was horrible. Actually, I think it was Bukowski. Um, <laughs> Todd, wrap us up. Uh, so mine's gonna come from one of my fictional filmmakers, maybe Fume K. It's really just an exchange between her and George Michael. Um, she says, "Look, here's my advice. Okay, you go to Rebels, you take a bag of lacy ticklers, hoo ha bras, dog toys." 
uh, sex knobs. Uh, you know, you, say you're expecting a booty call, as the old people uh, think the young people like to say. All, all right, you just tell her, I'm here for a quickie and I'm out of here, Mr. Brash. And, and then she'll drop you like a buttered cane. Is that something old people say? Yeah, I'm trying to get people, I'm trying to get it going. That's cool. And I feel like I go through that all the time. Do <laughs> you really think that maybe Funke was a better filmmaker than Peter Maldonado? Well, no, I forgot about that, but maybe Funke did make some And great Eli. Films. Come on, man. Yeah, Eli. See, why, why is like your guys' all honorable mentions? Like, why didn't Todd think of this one? Like, <laughs> that was what I was wondering. I was like, so well, what did you guys think about? <laughs> uh, the tripod. That, that's what you missed. You missed the tripod. All right. I actually have one more that uh, we're going to we're going to end our podcast with uh, one more little quote. And uh, it's in honor of James Kahn, Jimmy Kahn. He was a great follow on Twitter. And uh, if you followed him on Twitter, he ended every tweet with end of tweet. But like he would he would say what he was going to say, which would be some random observation of the world around us. And then he would say end of tweet. And even when his family posted on his Twitter account that he had passed away, it ended with end of tweet. So in honor of Jimmy Khan, have a wonderful day. We'll catch you next week on the Almost Sideways podcast. End of podcast. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs>